Good morning. We would like to welcome to the show Ashi Sapir. Welcome, Ashi. Ashi is our first guest on this as yet unnamed podcast, featuring myself, Sean Bernemanov, and a variety of hosts, a variety of guests um, who Amir Tashem have interesting, thoughtful conversations about a wide variety of topics, culture, politics, music, food, whatever, whatever interests me, whatever interests people I bring on, um, you name it, that's the goal. And um, Ashi is a very, very worthy first guest. Um, Ashi and I uh, are friends for a very long time. We met in Yeshiva in Baltimore um, at this point, 17 years ago. We're old, oh my gosh. Um, and from the very beginning, we hit it off because both of us had um, a strong interest in politics, in, 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 in geopolitics, in history, in geography, in, in um, the, stuff, the boring stuff you find in, between, in, in an encyclopedia. And um, Ashi's, of course, you know, it has, has a lot of personal history and a lot of personal connection to the topic we're about to discuss. As do all of us, um, we're here to discuss um, Eretz Yisrael, the attack on uh, Simplest Terra, on Shemini Terra, Simplest Terra, Shabbos, um, on October 7th. That's been, that sent our whole world into a little bit of a tailspin over the last couple of weeks. Um, Ashi was there in Israel. Um, and Ashi is actually from Israel. He grew up there. So he has a very, obviously, deep connection. But Ashi stayed in touch with Israel, and the, the politics, the, 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 the culture, the everything. Um, Ashi's been my go-to expert on internal Israeli politics for a very long time. And um, while neither of us are have any kind of degree or credential on this topic, we're both just people who like talking about it and thinking about it and reading about it. And um, we hope this conversation is interesting to you, the listener. Um, and so with all that, all that out of the way, welcome, Ashi. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Schoenberg, for having me uh, in this new platform. You know, all the years I really appreciated talking to you about uh, such topics. I think I, uh, I really enjoy your vast uh, array of knowledge and your, I think, deep sense of history and coming with sense of humor. So I always appreciate chatting with you, and uh, thank you for having me. Oh, my biggest pleasure. And for the record, I did not pay Ashi to say any of that. Um, so we'll start off um, with just, let's just jump right into it, because you were actually in Israel when this all went off. So if you don't mind just starting off by by sharing what that was like. Sure. Sure. Just very quickly, I was uh, for Sukkot in, uh, you know, in mainly in Jerusalem, as so many other Jews from Brooklyn and from all around the world. And obviously, it was just an amazing experience seeing so many. I mean, for me personally, it was just to see so many different communities. You know, I, I've befriended with the um, Litvish, you know, Yidin that were just my neighbors in the Airbnb and and I met Persian Jews and Sephardi and Ashkenaz and everyone just so many people that are passionate about Yiddishkeit. So throughout Sukkot, there was just, just this, you know, very Jewish energy, very positive. And, you know, just me and my American friends were like, wow, life here is so awesome. Maybe we should move to Israel. <laughs> you know, I mean, just having the good food in the shuk and the good times. And, you know, of course, you know. And then uh, Simchat Torah came. Um, now, for me personally, it's interesting. I was in, in the Airbnb with another friend, and we were in two different rooms. Now, what was interesting is that I was in the room that was the uh, safe room. The bomb okay. shelter. The bomb shelter. So it was, I mean, it was set up in the Airbnb. It's just a regular bedroom, and no windows, you know, but just a regular bedroom. And that's where I slept. Now, in Jerusalem, there were a few sirens in the morning, uh, which, again, that was surprising because usually they don't shoot towards Jerusalem. So that was something a little bit unique. Uh, I did not hear anything. I just slept in. <laughs> I went to sleep very late on, you know, Simchat Torah on Friday nights, very late. My 
my other friend, he was in the other room. He, of course, woke up. I did not. And then I woke up late. And my friend who heard the sirens, he had a bunch of phone calls. I mean, it was Shabbat, but he had a bunch of phone calls from a bunch of Israelis. He started to tell me what was going on. I wasn't sure what's happening, how serious it was. This is probably, I would say, I mean, Shabbos probably, which was Simchat Torah by um, probably you were talking about maybe 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. And then I was like, okay, I need to turn on my phone. Now, obviously, you know, I keep uh, I keep the Shabbos, but for me, it was like, you know, you, you, I mean, I grew up in Israel, so, you know, you have to listen to guidelines of uh, Pikuda Oref, right? Um, to just translate, Pikuda Oref is what? That's the civil command, if maybe, I don't know if that's a proper, but they're essentially coordinate to the civilians what they need to do in times of war. Go to the shelter, stay, avoid these areas, lock your doors, stuff like that. Exactly, exactly. The sirens and everything, exactly. So so for me, it was just like go on the internet and find the guidelines. Even while I'm in the Airbnb, don't even leave. Like maybe there are terrorists running right now in the streets of Jerusalem. So I opened the phone and just very quickly, obviously, as the news was coming in, I see there was a very serious uh, breach in the border with Gaza with, you know, lots of terrorists coming in. But I saw it wasn't in Jerusalem. So then we were like, okay, so then I turned off my phone. I was like, for a few minutes, let's find out the situation. And then we were like wondering, should we go to a Shabbos meal? What's a story? And then a third friend of ours came in, actually from his own Airbnb. And he's like, okay, he's doing good. Obviously, he also heard the news. We're like, okay, let's go for the meal. Let's go, you know, l- l- let's do this. This is our plan. We shouldn't cancel our plans. So on the way there, now just Jerusalem, we are in um, Nachlaot. The meal was actually in Rechavia. Okay. So it's like a 40 minute walk, 45 minute right, walk. Right, right. And actually, we went to the Kotel. Okay, so we said, we said, we said, we stopped. And what I realized, it's like my take is that some people that saw us, Israelis, were like nervous. I, you know what's going on? You know, like we were just like strolling around. Some Israelis that I asked, I said, I heard the guidelines is okay for Jerusalem. And said, yeah, yeah, don't, you, you do your thing. So it kind of reminded me a little bit of COVID where just people react to it differently. You know, some people would like just shelter in, that's a respond to it. You know, some people maybe, again, I'm not taking sides here, but I'm just saying some people would view it that, you know, I'm doing the responsible thing, but I still need to live the life. Right. Some people will be recklessly and, you know, just do whatever. So I just, I, I view that day that that was that, you know, variation. Um, anyway, so I went uh, I went to the meal and a bunch of people came. The host, actually, they had um, lots of people and, and everyone was like wanting the same thing. Is the meal happening? Is it not? Was actually interesting. The meal was actually um, it was in um in um by a wealthy house or wealthy family that had this like literally mansion Rechavi that views the whole city of Jerusalem, which was was it's something special, and you see from far different fires, um like you know obviously you see from from East Jerusalem. So you see we saw that, and anyway, this is my that's my experience on the first day. Wow, when when the, when like the when you, I mean, this is obviously the most terrible thing that's happened in a very long time in Israel. Um, it's like, so what I, I can just say, my, I was in Shoal. I came to Shoal obviously also late. I was in New Haven for, for Yantif. When we came in in the morning, I came in in the morning, right away someone told me the news and I just couldn't believe it. You're saying thousands of people, thousands of terrorists cross. How, how does that happen? Like how, how, how? My brain couldn't process it for a very long time. I couldn't even get to the horror of it. I just couldn't understand like how. Um, what was your immediate reaction to hearing that, like, 
a breach like that happened. Like Israel hasn't been Israel Israeli land hasn't been taken since seventy three, like this. Since the start of the Yom Kippur War, when Israel, when, when Egypt uh, surprise attacked and crossed the across the Suez Canal, Israel hasn't lost territory since '73. Like, how did you process that? Like that that idea. I mean, that day I didn't much like uh, indulge in processing like that. Um, that day, you know, I was just simply thinking, okay, do I have my ticket? Am I way out? Is the lull still flying? Is it not? And Actually, my ticket was with Elal, so my flight was pretty much on schedule. But um, so, so it was more like personal. It was more like personal. I didn't, even though I, I very much think in politics and history and geopolitics terms, but wasn't it didn't kick in right away. Uh, obviously, we didn't know much. You know, we didn't right. know yet. You know, we're talking about 200 dead. We're talking about 100 dead. I don't know if it would have made a difference to your point about the significance of this, but um, but yeah, just that moment, I was just thinking on a personal level. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. At what point did you understand how serious this was? Like, when did it happen? Like, I was like, I, I assume after Yom Tif, when you're spending time on your phone and everything is, all the news is really trickling in and you're hearing yeah. that the army didn't show up for, what, 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 what was it, four or five hours in some places? Longer. Even longer in other places, sure, yeah. sure. So, in truth, is right when I opened that phone on Shabbos, right away I saw it was different. It was something different because you saw that their terrorists had actually broke in. Okay, so that's that's something new. So, so right away I knew it was something different. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So, then you know your personal. Your feelings, your 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 fear, and I'm sure everyone is there is feeling the same way. Um, you know, just trying to figure out like what's going on with me, with my family, with my friends, trying to figure that out. Um, do you have friends, relatives, people you know in the south? In the south, near no. near Gaza, near that area? No, no. I mean, I grew up myself in Fakhabad, which is in the center, so I have family there. I have family in Yerushalayim, but not specifically in the south. Were you were you around people who were worried about their relatives and friends at that point? Sure, but not South specifically. Um, I mean, yeah, I was with them also, like uh, Americans, Israeli friends that also had families, um, families and everything um, in Israel. So everyone was concerned, but most people I know are actually in the center, actually right. in the center. Uh, but of course, it was uh, worrying across the board. I mean, I remember the next day, Sunday, so Isur Chag, uh, I was thinking, should I go to to Kfar Chabad, which those who don't know, that's in the center, right? It's right next that's to the... That's for the Akafot like the... Okay, oh, so let me go back. Akafot Shniot plans actually had to go to Hebron. Oh, wow, okay. okay. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll go back on that. Um, that was a plan. The plan is to go to Akafa. I signed up for the bus and everything, and I paid, and that was the plan. So, yeah, so in, you, you, something interesting, actually, throughout Shabbos, actually, I was also thinking about that. Like, would that happen? You know, it wouldn't. Of course, Moses Shabbos, I right away got a, a message from the company saying that they canceled that. Um, and Cholamoid, actually, I did a trip also to Shechem. I went to Kever Yosef. Yeah, yeah, which that was... Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. How does that work? Like, because like you're you're really going into the middle of a massive Palestinian city. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. I mean, it just I mean to explain that that's what's called Area A, right? So the, I mean, the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, it's divided into Area A, B, and C. Area A essentially it's the Palestinians' authority 
civil and police control, right? So Israel is actually not allowed to go there legally, okay? There's a sign outside of Shechem, literally, tells you you cannot pass there. Uh, I, I believe under one of the peace deals, they, they, part of the deal was that they'll allow Jews to go to Davin by, by the cave of Yosef Tzadik, right? So, I'm sure there's limits on people at a time and all that. Yeah, yeah. So, so they do it once a month. They do it once a month. And Cholamoy, it happened to be, they did it on Wednesday, which was the Ushpizin of Yosef. Wow, okay. Yeah, so that was special. That was really special. Uh, in short, I mean, it's a, it's a big operation, but just in short, I mean, you sign up for a bus. There's a, someone just a, it gave me that name of the company and then the bus, so I just signed up. And, and essentially, you go on a bulletproof bus, a middle of the night, and then they take you from Yerushalayim and from other cities, and you kind of lined, line up outside of Shechem at like midnight, and you're waiting for the military clearance and together with the military and a bunch of buses, I would say probably around 10 buses, bulletproof uh, buses, go into Shechem to Kever Yosef with um, heavy military you know, presence. Uh, and it's, there's a curfew in Shechem in that time. So right now we're talking probably at like 1 a.m. To, uh, to 3 a.m. There's curfew. No one is allowed to walk on the street there. And you go into Kever Yosef, which that was something very special. You know, you go there for like, maybe we were there maybe for like 45 minutes, I would say. And it's incredible energy. I mean, people right away set up because no one is there outside that time. It's just it's in a compound completely sealed off. Now, of course, unfortunately, Arabs from time to time do break in, and every few months they have to rebuild it and you know reconstruct. Right. But but when they moved in, they had to build everything—a sukkah, a, a dancing floor, and everything. <laughs> and they, you know, this is like a serious chardalim, um, 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 you know, a serious religious Zionist. Um, so so they do right away in a few seconds, and you go daven there and then dance. So it's very very special, and. I mean, talking about on the on the, um, on the military kind of background of this is, yeah, you're deep in Palestinian territory. I mean, you literally, you're seeing all signs just in Arab, I mean, in Arabic, just to, to give you the background. And and yeah, it's, it's in tons of security. And that being said, there was something special that you're dancing with this background, you're dancing in Yosef at Sadiq. So, so it was very, very special. And so, yeah, all of this kind of in the background, and I was traveling Israel throughout Cholamoid, and, and you seeing the dynamics, and actually on a different trip there, I went from Yishlam to Tzfat, we drove through all the settlements, so so you drive through, you know, you go up north kind of a few Yishlam, so, so you drive through Malea Dumim, through Shiloh, through Ifrat, Somet Tapuach, all the all the places you hear on the news. So right. so yeah, I was so even before this, I guess I was quite exposed to you know to the to the sensitivities that Israel has with its security concerns. Here in America, we um, and even when Americans go to Israel, we tend to stay in the in the safe areas, we tend to stay in the in the tourist areas. We go from for most from people, I guess we go like the, the triangle is you know Yerushalayim, Tzfas, Tel Aviv, basically. We go to a lot for like once every other, you know, like, you know, go, go to the glass bottom boat and that's it. And then we're out of there. Like in the Dead Sea, like that's really where we go. We're not, we're not in these edge territories. We're not going to the settlements in the, all the way to the tip of the north, you know, where Hezbollah can shell at a moment's notice. And we're not going to the settlements. Um, so I think in a lot of our heads, and a lot, I know I as an American thought this way, whenever we discuss Israel and Israeli politics, we we're into this, we, we've moved into a phase, or at least and we did until, again, until the until this latest um, um, disaster, we 
moved into sort of a phase where we started seeing Israel and its problems as sort of a long-term, like, ooh, how do we manage this? How do we build this? What's our, what's our way? What, what's the best way to solve these large, long-running problems? It's, we, we, we're not in, the, we, ever since the end of the Second Intifada, we, and they built the walls in Gaza, they built the walls in the West Bank, ever since all that disengagement, ever since all that, for better or the worse, and all the security, I'm sure you have a lot of opinions about those, those decisions about what was done by various governments to, to create the situation. Um, I know a lot of people think there are a lot of mistakes made that have led to the situation, but whatever, whatever the, the, whatever the, whether those, whether those decisions were good or bad in a vacuum, they did lead to a sense where Israel was safe and could start planning for the future in a big way. And so I think you tell me if I'm wrong from, from your, your, your opinion, I think a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the focus on the judicial reform was only possible because Israel had time and space to think about other things aside from the immediate security situation. I think the first sign of that was the, the Occupy Tel Aviv protests. This is the, the, you know, the, the original protests were against uh, housing prices, I think this is 2010, 2011. Um, original, that was the first sign that Israeli society had other things, that had, had all of a sudden had attention to think, think about other things aside from just the immediate security needs of the country. So, to you, in, in your opinion, how false was that sense? Meaning... If Israel had successfully fought off this attack, imagine a, imagine, imagine a counterfactual where IDF doesn't drop the ball. Whoever, we'll get into whose fault this is, I'm sure. But whoever's fault it is didn't screw up, and this didn't happen. They knew it was coming. They defended the border. They, they turned them back. It never happened. Was that, is, that even, is that sense that Israel was ready to think long-term? Was that true, in your opinion? And ready to like transcend the everyday security challenges and ready to like stop thinking we're a country under siege? Okay, so I think you mentioned a few things that I would a, like a million to things. address. A million, a million things, things yes. but uh, <laughs> let me let me. Uh, what I understood is your last point about you know Israel moving away from the Palestinian issue, from the security issue, feeling you know a sense of we're safe, and you're saying then we kind of explored other issues in society, uh, and I think your point on that is if if let's say if Israel would have been successful in a counterattack in this attack just now would that have changed or anything like that. So, so a few things. So, so it's interesting, you know, I, I grew up in Israel, you are right, just talking about the point that Israel moved away from, from what's it called, from uh, security issues to others. So I remember as a kid in the 90s, all the slogans was, who will bring peace? You know, so you had, I mean, you had the famous um, the uh, organization still around, Shalom Achshav, Peace Now, which then was very popular. Uh, even Netanyahu in, ran in 96 on the slogan, Osim Shalom Batuach, we're making a safe peace, right? A secure peace. So even he had like peace in his terminology. And yeah, it, it, that was then the priority of Israel. There was a certain sense of peace. Uh, probably, I don't know how far back you want to go in history, but probably since the Lebanon war where, where, where you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of, Killing, unfortunately, and a lot of victims, you know, the IDF had a lot of losses. So Israel, the society tried to look for other ways. Maybe we could do peace and that was Oslo and, you know, Hebron. That was the last, like, major war where the IDF fought a near-peer adversary and suffered near-peer losses. They won the war, but they took serious losses and they actually had to, like, invest their much of their military capacity to fight that war. Ever since then, we haven't done that. Right, right, correct, correct. That was the last, uh, uh, yeah, that's correct. That's uh, the last one. I mean, there was another Lebanon war, you know, uh, much later 2006, on. 2006, right. Right, right. 
Uh, but correct, exactly, yeah. So after that, the, there was like a shift in society. Okay, let's go back maybe to the negotiation table and for peace. And in the 90s, very much, I grew up this way. Now, already by then in the 90s, there were the bombing and the first intifada, the second intifada, um, which I, second intifada, I believe, started like maybe, yeah, I believe in 94, maybe 95, um, maybe something that went a few years. Um, again, I hope I'm getting the years right. We'll have to look into that. Um, the good news is that neither of us are experts with, with reputations on the line. So if we get our dates wrong, it's fine. We're not getting fired. We're not getting our articles retracted anywhere. It's fine. We're good. Awesome. Um, to, to the listeners, if, if our dates are fuzzy, feel free to Google them yourself. But you'll understand generally what we're referring to. Right, right. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so, 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 sorry. But, but in, just in, in, in just in very short, so, so the point is just to, to the point that you, you mentioned is then, yes, peace was a very big deal, and it was, there was a consensus that we need to talk about peace and we need to pursue peace. The question is, in which way? That was in the 90s. Came the disengage. Again, I'm fast so, so ju Sorry, just to, just, to, just to follow up on that point. You said that was in the 90s. There was just the question of how to pursue it. Could you like describe the two main factions of how to pursue peace in that time period? Okay, so from the... Best of my knowledge, and you maybe you can correct me or your listeners will correct me, I think then we had, on one hand, we had Rabin's camp and legacy that he essentially brought um, Oslo Accords. And just in very short, that meant that for the first time, there's actually Palestinian authority, and he allowed the PLO leadership to come to Israel and take a certain formal uh, leadership within the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, and for the first time. Okay. You know, you learn things every day. I did not. I did not know that part of Oslo was letting the PLO back into back into Israel. Yeah, yeah sure, sure. Arafat. Yeah, that was a, the, the. You Rabin know what? That's hilarious. I, I, there's like a gap in your knowledge. Like I don't know how I didn't make that connection because Arafat was in Tunisia and then he was in Israel. How did that happen? I never thought about that question. So you're saying that was Rabin? Yes, yes. That was yes. Here you go. That was Azar Kord, which Rabin and Paris were big. Yes, Paris at the time was a foreign affairs minister, I believe. Under Rabin, yeah, yes, yes. You so know that, what? That makes me just to be super personal and to interject my own thoughts about this. That helps me understand the decade just right there so much better. Can you imagine being a non-left-wing person who sees your government let Arafat, who murdered thousands of Israelis, back in, into the country? Can you imagine what that does to the to a person's brain? Like I understand that decade a lot better now, just with that question. Thank you. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I mean, obviously, the argument there was from Rabin's side is that you know if we'll give them so, some sort of independence, even though Rabin did not have the intention of giving them a full statehood, but um, if they gave them some limited governing, we could make deals with them, we could make peace with them. That was his side. Um, so he started that process with a Oslo Accord. Then a Rabin was murdered in '94, I believe. But again, we'll, sure. no. But know. at that time, just to go into that, at that time, Rabin had to have had at least the majority support of the country because in order to build a coalition in Israel to do stuff like that, you can't just be in power for five minutes. You have to be in power for. You have to have a durable coalition that's going behind you, which means the country was behind him. C correct, correct. Then the left was quite strong, yes. So, so I mean, his party was a, a very big party then, Avodah, the Labour Party. Meretz then, which today actually, they did not pass the threshold in the last election. Then I believe there were like 10 seats or something like that. So then there was a very significant voice to, to, to the left, yes, and, and for peacemaking and for the, you know, the concessions to the 
uh, Palestinians. Now, it's interesting, you're touching maybe on a technical thing because actually some people argue that he, that there was no Jewish majority for Oslo. Ooh, okay. Because yeah, yeah. The, the Arab parties were in that coalition? I, I think on the votes, actually, they relied on the Arab parties. And Shas, who was Haredi, they were part of the coalition. They did not support it, but they did not leave the coalition. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't break the government over this. Correct. So essentially... Very interesting. Co- correct. Yes, yes. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Shas? Shas, believe it or not, Shas. It's interesting. Today, we deeply know Shas as a, as a right wing associated with the Likud, but uh, then they were part of the left. Back then, okay, yeah, it makes sense actually, because my understanding is that originally the originally the Haredi parties really only cared about Haredi issues, and that's it. They really only cared about like we want to get our draft deferments, we want to get the money for for poor people, we want to get. That's all really they cared about, and they were going to be they were going to go with whoever government was going to give them those things. They didn't Com- have they didn't have a political ideology, so, so you know per se, as opposed to today where they have more of a political ideology. Correct, correct. So even today among the Haredi, Shas, for sure, they're right-wing ideologically. Today, uh, their voters are, it's interesting, you know, you have many right-wingers that, you know, like, especially among Sephardi, more like half of the family will vote for Shas, half for the Likud. So it's, today, they're very much one and the same. Uh, for the past, probably even two decades, probably. But yeah, correct, then it wasn't the case. It's really, it's interesting how things really shift, you know. Oh. Even religious Zionism originally was together with the, with the left, uh, interesting enough. So, Well, so, the original left didn't have a, um, the original left didn't have a problem with settling land. The original left did not have a problem with that. I mean, I'm sure people, elements within it did, always did. But I think, I, I, I could be correct me if I'm wrong, I think the, the right-wing at some point in Israeli history, was less likely to want to hold and administer the West Bank and Gaza because they saw it as a security issue, and they did not want integration of Arabs into Israeli society. They were against it. I think at one point, I could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at one point that was the case, where like the right wing would have been more like more likely to say, "Oh, let's just give West Bank. The West Bank should be Jordan's problem. Gaza should be Egypt's problem. We shouldn't have to. We shouldn't deal with this. We should take off whatever chunks work for our security and give everything give, give everything else back." Possible. Um, I don't, yeah, I mean, I'll have to remember exactly which point we're talking about in history. Right. But the point is, yeah, that things shift definitely in terms of the camps, the right wing and the left wing. But anyway, so just going back to the 90s, so there was just general thing about peace. You had on one hand, like I was saying, Rabin's camp, the so left camp. Bef- before Rabin was murdered, there was an opposition, obviously, that was very against Oslo. So what was their argument? They're saying, so Urban's saying, okay, we, we, we need to give away land. We need to give them control of the land in order to create a partner for peace. And two, there's a, there's two people who just want to live in prosperity. That's all, you know, we're not here. This isn't an, this isn't an existential struggle for like life. We're just two people. Let's, let's work together. The right response to that was what? The other right, the, the right wing response to that was what? Well, guess who was the head of the opposition then? <laughs> was, was it Bibi? Oh, it was Bibi. Uh, yes, that was Bibi. That was a fresh, young Bibi out of a, the ambassador in the UN. Um, the, the, I mean, their response back is that you're going to, essentially, if you're going to give them any police powers, you, they're going to use those guns against us. And that's what ha- indeed happened in the Second Intifada. Um, their opposition was, again, that you're making a deal with Arafat, who already at that time was responsible for murdering and for terrorist attacks against Jews and Israelis. So that was the argument. But what was their affirmative case? So the left is saying, here's our plan. The right is saying, your plan is bad. But did they have a different plan? Or they were just saying, your plan is bad? Yeah. So, I mean, 
I'm, I'm not sure exactly what was the, the strategy offered then by the right. I do want to say, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but I think right wing essentially, we would say that there is no solution. Again, I know I'm jumping w w well ahead, but, but I think maybe this will give us also some uh, sense of what went on back there, back then, is that is essentially, look, we're, we're, the, the, you're assuming that we can come to some sort of a solution. You know, sometimes in math, you have actually, you do have problems that have no solutions. Right. Now you could go crazy for a half hour, try to figure out that. No, but some things don't have a solution. Now, unfortunately, it's not our decision. It's our enemy there, you know, for them. It's just, they, they don't, they're not willing to concede for anything. So so there is no solution. And as, as negative as it might sound, we simply have to manage the situation for the foreseeable history. So... So I would say I'm not sure if at any given point the right wing offered a an alternate plan. They were just right, saying this like plan is bad. Okay. Correct, correct. This plan is bad, yeah. Yes. So you know, that actually again also helps me understand that decade because it's looking back to think looking back that the left that the, the left and center of Israel thought that they thought that they could pull this off, to me seems insane, even in retrospect. These people never made any pretensions about what they wanted. Like they may have said things nicely in English, but they're in, they were always saying like we want the whole thing, we want to, to kill all the Jews in Jordan. Like they were always saying that. So it takes a lot of self deception to 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 convince yourself that your this plan might work. That we might, if we give them control, if we give them some limited limited sovereignty and improve their economic prospects, then things are going to get better. It takes it takes self it takes a lot of like delusion to think that when people are saying to your face, no, actually, I want to kill you. I want the whole thing. I want. East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, which we, you know, retroactively in history renamed something Arab, even though before Israel, before the Jews came, there was just a patch of sand. Like, like it takes a lot of self-delusion, but the fact that the right wing didn't offer an affirmative plan for a, an increasingly painful and dangerous situation helps me understand how the left managed to push this through. Because I, I tend to agree with that right-wing view of history, the right-wing view of, of, of things like Sometimes there are no solutions. Sometimes you just have to manage a bad situation the best you can and just don't convince yourself that you have some utopian solution. But people want a solution. Everyone wants to hear that there's a way out of this mess. And so it makes, it makes more sense to me how people could get to that point where they thought that Oslo could work, that something like that could work. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting your, your perspective. I, I want to say something that you said, I think, as a side point, you were saying that, at least the way I understood it, is that um, you don't understand how the other side is saying, we'll kill you, we're not giving up anything, and this and that, and, and the, other, the other side, our side, is insisting that maybe we could give them something, could be partners. So I just want to mention something about that, which I think very much is connected with the current situation. See, there's something interesting in the West mentality, is that we think when we're facing such an enemy that tells you he'll kill you all, he's not, you know, you're telling you'll make your, your life better, just, you know, give up on something, no, I'll kill you. We're refusing to take them seriously. Yeah. We, we, we want to think that, no, 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 if only we'll give them enough money, their life will be comfortable, he'll give up his dream of murdering me. We, we, we refuse to think that what we saw on October 7th can actually happen. Right. You know, such atrocities. I think it comes down to the fact that Westerners don't understand that they're the weird ones. We don't understand that we're the weird ones. We like, th There's an, it's not much an accident of history that the enlightenment happens in these places and people develop these ideas of, of 
these, these ideas of the enlightenment ideas, the ideas of, of personal liberty, the ideas of finding ways other than force to solve problems, the mention of democracy, these are historical accidents throughout that obtained for um, such a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of, of human history in both time and space and number of people who are, who believe that way. We're the weird ones. And it's not human nature. The enlightenment is counter to human nature. Human nature is tribal. Human nature is, if you accidentally kill my uncle, my entire family's going to load up and get up and get, get on, get on our horses and murder your entire town. We're going to like, it, it's the rule of the strong over the weak. It's, it's the idea. It's, it's human nature is not that human nature is not enlightenment ideas. Human nature is not democracy. Human nature is not personal freedom and, and rights and, and war crimes. Like, like human nature is not those things. So I think it's in general a delusion that we don't understand these people are not like us because we don't understand that we're the weird ones. We don't get it. I think that's really what it comes down to. The to further find that point. But let's let let's we're 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 we're, we're, we're digression of digression of digression now. So let's yeah. let's try to get back to the main thread. Right. But but I think it's very much connected yeah, of course, with what 100%. you're saying. It's, it's, I mean, you, you, your question is very directly about the '90s. How did they make peace with people that that you know they barely even apologizing for any atrocities they do and. And you know they're, they're not saying that they're going to change their plans, so so it's very much connected to that where you don't take because you're so obsessed with trying to make peace deal and and you know so so you want to believe that they're just like you, and you want to believe that if you're going to make their life comfortable, they'll be willing to you know live by you side by side in peace. So I think that was the thinking. That helps. That helps me understand what's going what was going on there. So. The, um, so it's human nature. And I think the political, I think, I do think it's possible that the political fact that the right wing wasn't offering any kind of affirmative solution was just saying, no, 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 no. Human nature wants to believe in solutions. So I think that may have contributed to that as well. But I'm um, going back to your threat. So Urbin is ascendant. Urbin, or, 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 Urbin is in power. He starts the Oswald process in gear. It's, it's moving. Land is, land is being, land is being given over to their control. And then Urbin is murdered. Right. And then everything changes. Things change in a big way. So it's actually, it's interesting because there, I mean, you, you said um, Rabin is murdered and everything changes. That's a political statement. And why? Okay. Because, because on the left side, they would claim that. They would say that, you know, if only Rabin would have still been alive, then the peace process would have been successful and, you know, happily ever after. That's actually they're saying. And they're blaming on the fact that it failed and terrorism continued, on the fact that the Rabin was longer, no longer with us, and the Israeli society turned to the right then, and you know that was so. That's actually what's it called? That's so. I, so I just, I, took I, a position. So I just repeated the left version of the story. Right, right. Okay. So tell me, tell me the other version of the story. The other version of the story is that actually, so what happened in practice? Paris took over. Okay, he was a deputy prime minister, so he took so over. Shimon Peres, who was the, the guy who just would not leave for 50 years in Israeli politics. A correct, correct. You know, he started, I mean, literally, a more than 50, uh, he actually started under Ben-Gurion. Yeah, he, he was, was, was Ben-Gurion's deputy. Was, 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 dep he, he started, his first position was, that, was the, um, the, the head of Israel Defense Office, was, was he the one, was he involved in the decision to fire on the Altalina? Do I have that right? I don't believe Peres was that. Rabin was. Rabin, 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 sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Rabin. Yes, yeah, yeah. So just for the viewers who don't know, and the Altalina is a famous thing. Um, this presaged the eventual political battles in Israel over the next couple of decades, but Menachem Begin and David Ben-Gurion were running two different armies in the, that, that, were, that were fighting for Israel at the time. And obviously Ben-Gurion's army was much bigger and more well-funded and took over, ended up becoming the official army of the state. And they negotiated a settlement where 
Begin's army would become integrated into the IDF. But Begin had a shipment of arms that was already on the way, and some also I think some, also, also I think some volunteers were on were on were on the Altalina. Some people got killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And so he tried landing the ship with arms, and Ben Gurion got suspicious that Begin was going to go go back on the deal and arm his people, and so he actually fired the Israeli the, the, the Haganah, actually fired on the, the Altalina and killed dozens of, 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 of Jewish soldiers and destroyed thousands of tons of, of insanely important weaponry just in order to make sure that Begin didn't go back on that deal. And so that's, that's the, you know, some of the background to... Right. Just one more thing, though, is that once you, if you're mentioning the stories that Begin's famous respond, uh, response to that event, people were expecting that till now, you know, retaliate. fight, retaliate yeah, against the Agana. So he said, Milchemet achim leolam lo. A civil war, never. So, and, and he just ignored that, you know, as hurtful and painful as it was. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So that's just on that episode. And you're right, the Rabin was there. So really, by the way, I mean, even in this conversation, you realize how these players in Israeli politics are there for decades. I'm yeah. talking about it's a, it's a young country. It's a very young country. Really, think about it. Like, we, like we, we live in the now, and the, our now extends back to 10 years, Max, like our sense of history. We don't understand that in the scope of time, Israel as a modern state, as a, as a secular modern state, is a very, very, very young thing. It's a very new thing. The, the, sense, the, 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 the sense of normalcy that Israel, that was just shattered, tragically, um, was, is new. It was the first, I think maybe the first time, in Israel, is, is, maybe the first time was maybe that the time period between like the, the, um, the first Gulf, not the first Gulf War, the, the Sinai War in 56 and 67. I think there was also a 10 year period of time where Israelis thought things were going to be okay. Also, maybe in that 10 period, period of time, yeah, sort of, like the economy was growing, they were in, integrating millions of immigrants, like, you know. Like if it wasn't fighting for its life, there was fed in raids from Gaza and the West Bank, obviously, but it wasn't, it wasn't consolidating their borders. Exactly. And yeah. 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 Makes sense. Maybe, yeah. maybe the first period of time, but this is like, this is a new thing that was just, this is a new, beautiful thing that was just destroyed. Right. Um, right. But going back to the, to the, to the story of the politics, just side note, I think Menachem Begin is an extremely underappreciated figure in world Jewish history in a lot of different ways. Um, I think as Lubavitcher is actually, um, the way it ended for him has soured us on him because the Rebbe was super, was, was so against the Sinai deal, was so against the, the treaty with Egypt and Begin did that. So obviously we absorbed that and Rebbe was obviously right about that. It turns out in a thousand different ways, but it's, um, it's still me, it's still, it still sours our, the fact that he was truly a great, great man, like truly a great man, like a, a hero of, of Eretz Israel. I don't know how from he actually was, but he believed in Hashem. He spoke of it. He spoke that way. He was, and he lived his life that way. It's a truly incredible thing. And, and he was, he did, unbelievable things for millions of Jews around the world. And I think we should appreciate him a little bit more. If, if, if you're, if you're listening to this, I encourage you to find some biography of Begin and like we know him as, we know him as a character in the story. He's not a character. He's, he's a central figure to, to the story of, of Israel. But anyways, the, um, that's just my opinion. Yeah. You may, you may, you may, you may disagree uh, actually. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I agree. I agree. I agree with you. Definitely. So, Let's again for the yeah. fifth time. We'll try to get back to the so to the jumping thread. to Shimon Peres back to yeah. Shimon Peres. So he took over now. So the other version regarding the peace process after the uh, the assassination of Rabin is Peres took over, and now interesting. The opinion polls showed that Peres was going to win the election. Okay, so we, there was an election in '96. So I mean, Peres took over as as just the succession. He took over exactly as right. He was, he was, a, he, was an, the, he was the next ranking minister in, in the in the ruling coalition. So he takes over as as prime minister, 
And then, but there's an election that has to happen at some point soon. Yeah. By the way, just an interesting, very side point. With you, you said he was within the Labour Party. Now him and Robin politically hated each other. I mean, there were two rivals for for decades, literally for decades, and each one used to curse each other. And that's like <laughs> that's well known. But yeah, so he took over. He was a deputy. He was the second most powerful person in that party. So yes, he took over right away and, and became prime minister. Yes. And so this is again, I believe, ninety four. And and then he was head in the polls, in the opinion polls, and the election came in 96. Okay. So there, but, there, but he had some time to still keep Oslo moving. Correct. Correct. So, so correct. So everything was still going according to plan uh, in terms of the peace process. So the, tra the transfers of power were happening, the transfer of, of equipment and arms and economic development, whatever was still happening. Exactly. So whatever was agreed in the in the in Oslo Accords, it was like you were saying there there were stages of it, and soon we'll see. Also, some of it happened under Netanyahu, uh, but yes, correct. Uh, so that was still going on through Paris, yeah, through the time of Paris. But already then started the the Second Intifada, and uh, the bombing and the terrorist attacks in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Then. Israeli society got kind of a cold feet, if you want to say about the peace process. Like these are our partners for peace, they're, they're, but they're still doing this. Why are they still doing this? We're giving them, like we're negotiating, we're talking. Why is this happening? Right, exactly, exactly. So to, you, to your, I, I've never understood this. How did, how did the pro-Palestinian, or I guess at that point it was Israeli peace faction, how did they explain away the second intifada? Like how did they say, oh yeah, this is fine, this is normal, it's okay that they're doing this, we should, we should still keep doing Oslo? So, so it's interesting. During that time, Arafat and the mainstream of the Palestinian Authority, the establishment, they said they had nothing to do with it. So, so they they explained it that this is just you know people in the fringe of the Palestinian society that they're seeing that the peace that is actually happening and they're trying to stop it. You know, so this is kind of like a test. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that, that's how they viewed it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's in public. That, 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 that's what they said to the Republicans. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was a, there was a term that was actually coined, and one of probably the scariest terms was coined called "banota shalom." I don't know if you ever heard that. Uh, I have not. That's an awful term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sacrifices this, for peace. Sacrifices for for peace. Yes, that wow. was literally search it up. Called "banota shalom," but that's how that's how they were defined. But by Israelis, that they were called Shalom. This is the price of peace. There's some people in the fringe that they're wanting to stop this normalization. Um, maybe, again, I'm jumping ahead, but maybe this will give some clear. Maybe in a way the Hamas is trying to stop the peace with Saudi Arabia. They're trying to okay. stop this normalization. Um, so people used to explain that, that Arafat has nothing to do with it. Um, now, of course, that was not true. Arafat Obviously. had to do with it. Um, I mean, their hatred continued and their education in school against Jews continued. But you, you're asking how did the left take it and those that wanted to defend the peace process, that's how they saw it. So going back to the main thread of the story, so the, the, the peace process is starting to seem less um, attractive to Israelis and going, going into the 96 election. Right, right, 96. And again, this is when a, a Netanyahu ran for prime minister for the first time in 96. He ran under the slogan, Osim Shalom Batuach. Unlike this piece, we're going to make a, a, a secure, a safe peace that will achieve a security. 
Uh, so you see again, peace. It's still in the lexicon. It's still in it's the, the mainstream. You're, meaning you're fighting over you're fighting over the peace position. Who can do peace better? Exactly. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. And Netanyahu won in '96, not by a lot. He just won by a slim majority, but he won. He, he won, and he became prime minister in '96. And again, a little bit like fast forward, he actually continues the peace process that started in Oslo. So he makes the the Hebron deal with Arafat. And what's the Hebron deal? So again, I'm not I'm not a hundred percent on the details, but they that that. Palestinian Authority gets some of the, what's it called, some of the uh, control, becomes Area A, essentially, some areas there. A, some land had to actually, some settlement near Ketaba had to, part of the deal had to uh, evacuate. Again, I hope I'm getting the details right. Uh, but essentially, it was continuation to the peace process. Again, like you were saying, it was in stages, so he continued another stage. Uh, he... Netanyahu later, and I guess we'll talk more about Netanyahu, about his personality and the way, what's his vision. But he says it was kind of like a process that he couldn't really stop. Um, Netanyahu does not like, and again, I'm sure we'll get into that. <laughs> Asham, and we're both smiling. I think we'll, we know we have a lot to say about that. Just to, just to preview, Ashi is a massive BB fan, or at least he was. We'll find out if he still is. And um, I'm less of a BB fan. I don't, I don't hate him like the left does, but I'm less of, less of a fan of BB than, I, than I, I, think, I think I should. But we'll get into it. I'll, we'll get into it. I just want to say that I do not agree with those remarks, but okay, we'll fine, get into it. We'll get into it. Okay, we'll get into it. Fine. Okay. That's your version. That's my version. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, but anyways, but, but the point is that, so yeah, he continued uh, that, uh, you know, the process. And, and meanwhile, there were terrorists from time to time still, uh, then Netanyahu lost in 99 to Ud Barak from the left in 99. So again, you're seeing the left is competitive and about peace and... and. So the, the narrative of that time is like, Bibi's not doing left, Bibi isn't doing the peace deal, isn't doing peace correctly. He's screwing up somehow. The left is going to come back and do it better again. Like, is that the argument? Is that is it, or is it still is, is peace still a central question? Or those other those other issues. So there actually there were other issues though within the Likud party. There was a lot of infighting uh, within the ruling party. That's that very shocking. That's the last time that ever happened. To that is the last thing that ever happened. <laughs> um, Netanyahu would say that he made a lot of mistakes in that in his first term, um, but but in terms of peace, I don't recall exactly what was each narrative in '99. But uh, essentially, Ud Barak won, and he was from the left. He was this young, you know, general. He was a he was a the commander in chief of the Israeli army. Put a pin in that because I, I want to get to the question of why do so many of Israel's high-ranking generals end up becoming lefty politicians? That's a question I want to get to. So let's try to remember to get to that. But yeah, so he becomes he becomes uh, he becomes prime minister, and then he recommits to Oslo, and everything it's back. I remember Ao doing a bunch of things. But Barak, yeah, yeah. yeah. So co correct. So first of all, he leaves Lebanon, okay. Um, meaning, meaning Israel still had them. The buffer had, zone. Israel had uh, actually a Sadal, which is interesting. Sadal was a a, a southern army in Lebanon that was friendly to Israel. And it was mostly, again, I'm, I hope I'm getting the details right, but I believe it was mostly Druze and like different minorities within Lebanon that was still causing some headaches to Israel. So he withdrew from Lebanon very famously. So even, even throughout this time, even after the end of the Second Lebanon War, in we're talking about in the 80s, 
Israel still had some operations going on in Lebanon that had some price to pay. So he famously did that, withdrew from completely from Lebanon. And again, I wish I can have more details on that, but that I do remember. Um, and, and yeah, he, he again, he met with Arafat. He was with Bill Clinton and Arafat. They met and he was trying to push again for a further peace, even though there was lots of, again, more bombings and more terrorist activities here and there, suicide bombings in buses and cafes. And yeah, that was still going on. This is still the second intifada. Wow. Yeah. So imagine there was essentially violence restarting from Rabin's time, Oslo, going to 2000, 2001, okay, under Barack. And actually it continued, but right now that's where we're holding in our conversation. So, and Barack was for a short time prime minister for two years. And then indeed, because of the terrorists and everything, his government failed and Sharon came in. In 2001. And Sharon is the big right wing hero. He's, he's won multiple wars for Israel. Um, he's done some controversial stuff in Lebanon, obviously, which right wing people love sometimes doing, you know, various, uh, various, you know, black ops operations that end up with a lot of people dead, but it was okay. Because in Sabra and Shatila, Sabra yeah. Shatila, but more than that, meaning it was even before Sabra and Shatila, Ariel Sharon ran an illegal war in South Lebanon. A... Meaning, or, or at least, or, we don't know the full story, but the point is parts of the government claim that they didn't know what, they didn't know what Ariel Sharon was up to in yeah. there. I'm sure it's still controversial. I'm sure the right wing has a different version of the story, but the mainstream version of history that I've read says that Ariel Sharon straight up just didn't tell people what he was doing and was started a slow motion invasion of Southern Lebanon way before the actual yeah. invasion happened. Yeah, so so I'm not so familiar on those details, but I mean, in general, I mean, if you're talking about Sharon a little bit about his background, so probably famously he was doing Yom Kippur War, where, and this you might, I, I, I'm assuming you'll have more details than what I have, but maybe not, but uh, that he was famously, he did, was not subordinated to he, the generals and through different maneuvering with his tanks, he saved a lot of his soldiers and he became a big hero in Yom Kippur War. I think I think he was, the, he basically started the Sinai crossing, the counterattack, without permission, as far as I understand. Like, I think he lied or he fooled people. Into, like, he basically, the, the move that won the war, essentially, the end of the war, I mean, Israel, was, Israel probably would have won at that point. The balance of power was already in their favor somewhat. Um, especially once the U.S. arms arm coming in. But um, I think at that point, I think that move ended the war a lot quicker than it would have, and he did it without permission, which would be a pattern of his. Through, throughout. Right, right, correct, 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 correct. It sounds right, it sounds right, exactly. So he he did his achievement in Sinai campaign doing Yom Kippur War, correct, without permission, and he became a hero for that. Uh, he also, it's interesting, he built probably the most settlements. Very interesting. He was doing begging time, he was the Sarah Shikun, which essentially is the housing minister. And with that ministry, he built a lot of the settlements, which fast forward, some of it he actually evacuated later on during the disengagement to 2006, which we'll get. But but he actually built and he did everything in a very, he, he knew the rules and he knew how to play the game. And like you said, he knew where he can get away with breaking the rules and very talented action-oriented general, yes, yes. Um, you know, um, just, just by the way, just one side point with my personal experience just now when I was in Israel. So actually, I, I, in the old city, I did a tour with the uh, Ateret Kohanim, uh, they have a yeshiva, but those are the organization that essentially they buy properties um, in the old city um, that currently owned by non-Jews and they kind of, you know, convert it into Jewish ownership and they have a whole operation. One of the big people that pushed for it was Sharon, actually, at the time. And they told me just, 
when I was there on the tour just now, they shared with me different stories how Sharon knew the the housing codes and the rules and the judicial in order to play around. So 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 yeah, he was a very accomplished both in the, when he was a general and then later when he was in politics. He was um, yeah, yeah, talented yeah, so guy. So very talented. He, he comes to power and he's he's saying I'm going to restore the peace, the security situation. Is my understanding of it. Uh, uh, this is my this is where my my political understanding of Israel starts to starts. I was very young. I didn't know anything. But I remember that when people in Sharon was when Sharon was elected, people were very excited, at least here, because they said, "Oh, he's going to end the violence. He's going to end the bombing. He's going to punish the the, the 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 terrorists, and it's it's, it's over. We're we're going to be safe now." Yes, but actually, even then, I mean, talking about still, the Israeli society is kind of like obsessed, or still they, I guess, want badly peace. So his slogans were actually, I mean, talking about slogans, and I remember this. I mean, two thousand one, I was ten years old. So his slogans was Ariel Sharon Manig la Shalom. Ariel Sharon, a, a leader, to, a leader for, uh, right. for peace. Yeshli bitachon b'shalom shel Sharon. I have a trust in the peace that Ariel Sharon will bring. So again, peace, it's a big part of the terminology, even in Ariel Sharon, you know, right wing. Right. So, so yeah, that was where the Israeli society is holding. Um, now, yeah, so, so, so Sharon won in 2001 because, again, the backdrop of that was the... Uh, was was essentially again more terrorists and more bombing. So, uh, what year was the famous Sabaro bombing? I mean, after probably two thousand three, probably maybe two thousand three. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so again, later we'll have that. to do we'll, we'll have to right. do a search. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. So so he was prime minister. Yeah. So for two thousand one, and and that was a um was a special election in two thousand one, him versus Barack because Barack government failed. Then the system was a little bit different than today's. Whatever, we won't get into that. But then he ran again the, for the normal election in 2003, and he won, a, how do you say, a massively. He won actually very almost 40 seats for the Likud then, 38. Um, and then he went into, again, there was still terrorists going on, t- terrorist uh, bombings. So what he did then, he did operation actually in the West Bank called... Chomat Magen, okay, wall of defense, I guess that's the term of it, where literally they went into all the cities, collected the weapons. At some point, they actually surrounded Amukata. That was a complex where Arafat sat in Ramallah. There are some famous images when they cut off the electricity of uh, Arafat. And I remember Sharon is, I remember actually, till today, I remember actually in the radio, he was saying, you know, Sharon is a terrorist and now he'll be alone. I remember that, Sharon is a terrorist. Now that was a big success, Chomat Magen. Okay, it was an operation that was done in the West, a thorough house by house, collecting illegal weapons, uh, you know, arresting terrorists. Of course, there were losses, you know, by soldiers as well. I forgot, I forgot the, the number, but uh, but it was a big success. And actually, that stopped actually what's it called? That stopped the um, the second intifada, and then he also built a wall. And there are different versions how helpful that was towards the security of Israel. Um, right. Yeah. So so this is a Chomat Magen was probably after it's probably two thousand four. I would I would say probably two thousand three to two thousand four. So then this is, I think also this is when the famous fake Janine massacre happened. So there's at, at the, one of the, it wasn't always like this where the West reflexively assumed that Israel was um, murdering innocent people just for fun. Um, it's not, 
it didn't always to be this way. I think this is when it starts when the pro Palestine the pro Palestinian West starts spinning up the media complex where there's ten thousand reporters in Israel covering every inch of ground, trying to find some IDF soldier looking at a a teenager the wrong way, and and trying to document every instance. And there was when the IDF went into Janine, they there's a massive battle. There was a fog of war for three days because IDF when they go in they cut off media access and they don't tell anybody they don't tell anybody what they did because Israel stays winning at PR always from the very beginning they're so good at PR sure um, and so there was like reports of thousands of dead they went to a refugee camp in Janine thousands of dead Palestinians Israel did a massacre for a week the, for a week the story ran around the world until Israel was like actually like fifty people died and they were mostly terrorists who died and died fighting like you know actually shooting at us like we killed them like. And, and that was one of the first times I think where the West just like started believing this narrative about Israel as this bloodthirsty, ethnic cleansing, genocide, all that. Um, I think that's when it starts. But I think here's a good time to get back to the thing we talked about earlier because in 2003, Earl Sharon had this, this is big success with the security operation. Um, and then he takes a different turn with the Gaza disengagement. I think here's a good, I think here's a maybe, I, I don't know if you have any special insight into this, but maybe you have an opinion at least. Why do high-ranking Israeli officials, um, high-ranking high -ranking Israeli generals, chiefs of staff, war heroes, why do they become lefty? Why do they turn lefty to the lefty on the security question where they say, oh, we can't, uh, we can't do this anymore. We have to give them what they want. We have to give them territory. We have to give them control. We have to give them arms. We have to, we have to withdraw from this area or that area. We have to engage in international diplomacy. What is it about that experience for generals who run these massive wars, who who are heroes, who save, who who do incredible things, that makes them become lefty lefty politicians, or at least left leaning over their time in office. Oh, you you're making me think. You're making me think, Schlumber. You know, I never thought about it in that perspective, but but I'm thinking about it now. It look, it could be it comes from a place that they're. They're just, they're never, they always think whatever, if, if there'll be a peace um, plan, you know, that, that is coming up as an idea, and the right wing will scream out, no, no, this is not good for security, and this will expose more Israelis for, to danger. So I think the left, sorry, I think the generals would always respond, oh, there is no threat we can't deal with, you know. So, I mean, talking about, let's say, the disengagement, again, just jumping just ahead, is that, remember then, all the generals said, oh, if, if they're going to shoot, they believe that if we're going to do the disengagement, meaning if we'll leave all the settlements of Gaza, then it will give us legitimacy to, it will give us legitimacy to encounter and deal with any terrorists more than, more than ever. And there's nothing we can deal with. So, so if they'll, so if they'll, what's it called? If they'll start shooting at us rockets, missiles, then we'll, um, then our F-16 and F-15 will, you know, counter that. So I don't know if, if, if being a general in the army drives you to the left specifically. I don't think so. But I think just it's part of Israeli society. Why are they, you know, why you have, you know, left opinions there. And I think as a general, you, you could, you're very sure of yourself that whatever happens, you can, you can deal with that. We have a plan. We have a plan for this. We have, we have, we have the soldiers, we have the training, we have the arms, we'll, we, can, we can take care of any issues. So 
that's the logistics of military operations are not a problem. We can deal with any threat. We can we can we can invest in peace because we can we can respond if anything goes wrong. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and look, I think I think just as Israeli when they as a society when they really wanted peace, it's because they saw the victims and they saw the dead and they saw the terror bombings. The generals saw the same thing, and they're under the same influence like everyone else. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 I mean, I mean, by the way, let me throw the question back at you. Why, I mean, your question is, why can, why hawkish people be, go to the political left? Is that essentially your question? No, I, my question is, maybe this is a very dumb way of looking at it, but I think most people associate military culture, people who join the army, people who thrive in the army, people who do great things in the army, with a more belligerent um, perspective, like, ooh, we're going to, like, we, we welcome war. War is not good, war is bad, but like war is sometimes necessary. It's important to win wars completely. Diplomatic solutions often tie the hands of the generals. Like, politicians mess with us and they don't know what we have to do. I mean, Ariel Sharon spent 30 years, essentially, of the prime of his career, doing things that he thought were better for Israel against the orders or advice of the politicians the people who were trying to think long-term, trying to think in terms of peace and, you know, long, you know, and then he turns around and goes ahead and does the same thing, essentially. So that's my question. You, you imagine that generals, war heroes, again, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's silly to think this way, but in my head, that's coded sort of right wing. That's coded as, um, strength on strength. We meet challenges with strength. We don't go to the we don't negotiating table is for losers. We fight and we establish dominance. So that's that's my perspective on it. That's that, that's that's my question. Why do people, uh, um, you know, the the maybe maybe Israeli society is obviously different in a million different ways. Maybe Israeli society is different because everyone joins the army, not just not just the right wing, like you know, in America, for example, who joins the military, the southern people. They're more they're they're generally more of a martial culture. Going back to going back hundreds of years when they first came over, literally, like you can trace back um, if you look at the distribution map of American military volunteers you'll see that they disproportionately come from places that historically have um, a very martial, combative culture, like the Scots-Irish, who lived in the border areas in England hundreds and thousands of years ago and spent their entire existence like raiding back and forth and fighting. Um, so like that's, so in my head, but Israel is different obviously because everyone goes to the army, even including the, uh, the elite of society go to the army. And the elite of society actually end up becoming the generals of society as well. So maybe the question is answered actually there. That meaning that the military service and military achievement and heroism doesn't change who you are fundamentally. That's your job, so to speak. And that job may give you experiences and, and ways of thinking and talking that inform your politics, but you still are who you are. And what you are for a lot of these people is their original um, Ashkenazi elite that settled Israel. And they had a certain perspective. And that perspective at that time in the 90s and the early 2000s was pro-peace process. So I guess that question is answered. I guess so. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, yes. Or at least so. maybe I don't know if that's the right answer. Yeah, yeah. At least, at least Again, that's the answer look, I can come to. Israelis had generals, obviously, on the left. I mean, look, Barack, Rabin. Um, Barack was a hero, too. Barack was a hero, too. Barack, sure, Barack sure, was, he, was involved in some famous special operations. He wore he, a dress. He wore, he wore a dress in I, Beirut. I was going to say, he dressed like a woman. <laughs> correct, correct. Yes, he was from Seret Matkal, and very famously, one of the operations that had deep in Beirut. He was dressed like a woman. I... I uh, encourage your <laughs> listeners to start look that up. Uh, but yes, Rabin as well, and um, almost entirely, all, um, I don't know if all of them or most of them, yes. Wow. 
Yeah. Okay. So that's a sidebar. It's a, it's a yeah. question that I guess will, that's an interesting question that we can keep going back to. But so let's go back to the story, the main, main thread of the story. So Sharon, after her success in 2003, spends the next couple of years laying the groundwork for this engagement. So how does that happen? What's the thought process? How, what's, what's Israel's reaction to that? So, I mean, just in very short, I think, I mean, the, the, there are a few things. Sharon had this idea. The U.S. was pressuring Israel to do some sort of a peace concession. Sharon uh, had that idea. And Israeli military right away backed Sharon on that idea. Whoever in the army did not was sacked. Famously, actually, Moshe Bugi Alon, who's currently a little bit in politics, he was the head of the army then, and he was his chief, uh, commander-in-chief, and he was against it, actually, so he was sacked. And instead of him came Dan Chalutz. But essentially, it was just, it was a change that happened in Sharon that very quickly, uh, again, this is at least my version of it, is that um, all of the establishment in Israel backed Sharon in it, promoted it, and, like, uh, yeah, really, really promoted it um, to the next level. Um, the media and everyone. So again, whoever was was uh, was stood in his way, he fired them. Yeah. So we've we've argued about this before. You corrected me actually, because I didn't know much about it. But what was the stated motivation? My understanding, and again, this is because I've obviously you know you you absorb the mainstream version of history that comes down to you. And I've never I've never done any research. I remember as a kid the disengagement. I remember the uh, the the tragedy. Everyone was like, like here in America, everyone was so upset and pissed about it. People were so angry, and Americans went over to like volunteer and fight the fight, fight the, and argue with the soldiers, fight the, fight the soldiers. Famous pictures of it. They're pulling people away. You know the songs, "Hello, yeah, hello, you care," like all those like the, 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 yeah, like the the. My understanding of the narrative was that it's too expensive for us to maintain these settlements. It costs us in lives, it costs us in security, it costs us in money straight up if like, the army has to protect these settlements and they're in the middle of a million hostile people. So, and, but, you, but when I said that that was the reason, you said that that wasn't true in some, in some sense. You, you were, at least the last time we spoke about this, you argued with that narrative. So what's your, what's, what was actually going on there? What, what, what's the story that the left and Sharon used to justify this? And what, what was actually going on? Uh, to fill in our viewers, what you specifically, if I recall in that conversation, what you specifically said, that Israeli society was not willing to pay that yes, price. Yes, that is the way I phrased it. That's yes. the way you phrase it. And I was saying that it's, it's. I mean, again, if what I recall, what I, will, I responded to that, it's that few things, is that you need to understand, Sharon won, and this is exactly what I was saying. You were saying that the disengagement happened as a result of society pressure. That was your point. And I was saying, one second, 2003, Sharon won the election and a promise not to do something like that. And he won a clear majority. Now, it is true in the middle of his term, he made a U-turn, a political U-turn. And we can argue about how legitimate, politically legitimate that is. But, and then indeed, the opinion polls did show a, a, a solid majority for the disengagement. For, so essentially, you have all the left supporting it and a chunk, maybe a third of the right or something like that, at least starting off with the plan for the disengagement. As closer as you got to the disengagement, that majority shrunk, I think, but the disengagement itself, it's still a very, very narrow, according to the opinion polls. Now, you need to understand, this is not an election. This is just opinion polls by, in my opinion, a deeply left-established media in Israel. 
So, so my point is that the disengagement did not happen because of society pressure. Right. That okay. was my point on that. There was a, it was a movement pressure. It was political pressure, movement pressure. Some some part of the some part of the dominant governing coalition of Israeli society, including the media, including the intelligentsia and the judiciary, whoever. Um, were, was pros and that's why it happened. Not because Israeli society as a whole was demanding this. The way I was saying it in that conversation, it was a very top-down a, a plan and it was executed very top-down. Now, again, I, I, there was, I mean, it is true. I mean, there was a certain price for Israel being in Gaza. It is true, like you said, the army was very exposed in protecting the settlements there. Um, and every year there were a bunch of soldiers who got killed. Um, Similar to what's happening in the West Bank, but yeah. probably more complicated because, again, the, den the dense urban area. Um, uh, so, yeah, that, that was indeed, um, you know, what uh, what was going on. I have a whole separate theory about why, and, and many many do, why Sharon had this U-turn. Uh, well, this is the place for theories, Ashi, so This please. is the place for theories. No, no, so, so this is, I mean, again, this is a, a version, but it's not, it's not like a, say, you know, I mean, it might sound a little bit crazy, but it's not so, you know, perfect. <laughs> it's, Sharon was under a lot of um, investigation for corruptions. Him, his son, and you can search at that, eh? those like this Greek island, uh, whatever it is. It's ringing, it's ringing some bells. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there was a, there was a whole, you know, the whole, um, what's it called? Sharon, according to this version, um, uh, Sharon believed that if he'll go ahead with this plan, the Israeli judicial police media establishment um, will give him a break. Now, now there are actually statements being said by very famous left-wing media. There's, for, just for example, that comes into my mind, Amnon Abramovich from Channel 2, still a very dominant journalist. He said, um, we have to guard Sharon like a trog. We have to, we have to be careful with them like a trog. We have to, you know. A trog as in like S-Rog? S-Rog, like, yeah, like an S-Rog. Yeah, literally, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, not, not, make sure no harm is being done to him because he's doing the disengagement. Literally, a, a quote by him. This is not because a, you know. Because also means grenade. <laughs> oh, uh, Rimon, 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 sorry, yeah, Rimon, 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 Something like that wouldn't fly. There's such open information today with the internet and this. So I think today. To I mean, also there are some there are some major right wing news channels in Israel now, newspapers. The left the left doesn't run the whole media anymore. Like correct. Used to. Correct. Correct. They're still the majority, but there's a significant minority right now being controlled by the right. Correct. Exactly. Uh, so today something like that. But then it was Israel literally had like two channels and like you know three newspapers and all. So it was much easier to protect something to, like to run that. the conversation and keep people exactly exactly. And there was an those expression in Hebrew then I forgot who who coined it. meaning as deep as the investigation against Sharon will go, that's how deep the evacuation will happen. The more pressure Sharon would feel from that side, the more, right. what's it called? So this is a version of what happened to Sharon suddenly. Uh, again, it's, it, it's not like a, you know, it's not like a conspiracy theory. I wouldn't call it something so, you know, but yeah, I think if you'll read the history, you'll, you'll come to realize that it's not so far-fetched as you would think, as one might think. I think. I think we could settle on a version of that story where even if 
we don't believe that it was there, there was a direct quid pro quo of the investigation with like leftist establishment. It's it's him wanting to wanting to be accepted or or protected by an establishment that used to attack him that motivated him to doing that. So even if we don't have to settle on the actual like you know like oh it was because in exchange for doing this disengagement they would drop the investigation which is more direct quid pro quo which is I guess, harder to prove. But I think I think a, a narrative like that where him just wanting to become less attacked, more protected, more integrated into that establishment, which, you know, as a rich old politician probably seems attractive to him at that point, um, may have been the, may have been, may have, may have been a motivation for him to do it. Right. Right. But, but remember, they're not just an attractive thing. They actually, I mean, again, they're, they're in the, the, um, the, they were in control of the police of the, you know, the AG, right. The attorney general office and, everything else so so it's it's not just an attractive political man, maneuvering you might feel it's necessary to save your back so then Sharon disengagement happens a tragedy um it's a low year but it happened it was very sad right I mean tragedy depending on which side you are but but correct I mean, for the, the right the tragedy thing. the tragedy of um of of hundreds of Jewish people losing their losing their homes almost 20,000 yeah hundreds of thousands of families losing their homes and um this could not have happened. Um, this latest attack could not have happened if Israel was still there. Maybe, maybe there's maybe other things could have happened. Maybe other tragedies could have happened. It's possible to know, but this would not have happened if Israel was still in Gaza. Correct. Correct. And 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 just so on, that's that's what I mean by tragedy. Yeah, and just on that to explain again, we're, we're fast forward, but I think you just made a statement just to explain that is currently in the West Bank because Israeli army is present there, then. Any threat that comes up, it's relatively much easier to deal with it. You have a terrorist in Shechem, in Jenin. You need five army vehicles in the middle of the night going in and arresting the person. Right. Why? Because Israel army is present there. They have to protect the settlements that, that throughout the West Bank. Some out of area A, they're outside sure. of it, but they could go to deal with it quite yeah. with, with the minimum cost. Israel has a day-to-day interaction and and connection with the people of the West Bank. They they work with them, they police them. There's there's in certain areas they're this they're they're the they're the administrative state in that area for, for, for the people. There's a lot of there's a lot of day-to-day connection. So you know what's going on. You can't dig four hundred miles of tunnel under the West Bank without Israel knowing about it and them stopping it. You can't import hundreds of thousands of, of, of pounds of explosives into got into the West Bank without Israel knowing about it because they're running it day to day. You, you know, in Gaza, Israel is not inside. They can, only, they, can only, they can only look in from the outside. I'm sure they have intelligence agents inside Gaza, but that's different. It means it's, it's, it's like running an agent in China. You can hope that you're getting good information. You can hope that the person's reliable, whatever, but you're not actually boots on the ground. In, in the West Bank, Duv Devan, the unit is on the streets every day. The Shabak is on the streets every day. They let, they, they, it's their territory. Right. In, the Gaza, in Gaza, they're not. In Gaza, they're out. So Hamas had the ability and the space to plan this in peace for 10 years. Right, but let me also add, not only the fact that you know about it, that you have the intelligence. You could do something about it. You could do something about it, exactly, yeah. at relatively uh, much Lower smaller. cost, lower engagement, lower lower exactly. investment. Exactly, Like, you don't have to go, Israel right now, if they're going to, we, I have no idea, we'll, we'll get to what they should do and what they will do down the line, but they, they, they now have the task in front of them of destroying a dug-in military faction. They're dug-in, they have equipment, they have... It's already there. They have to go back and unpeel that. They have to go back and destroy 400 miles of tunnel. That's, that's if Israel was still in Gaza, they, after the first mile is dug, they stop that. 
Correct. They stopped you, you the first pile. You, you wouldn't get to exactly. four hundred miles. Right, you, right, would, you wouldn't get to a stockpile of hundreds of thousands of rockets, whatever the number is. You wouldn't get to that. You wouldn't get to that. You wouldn't get to them piling up advanced anti-tank weapons and like and, and anti-aircraft weapons. Like you wouldn't have that. It wouldn't be possible. So whether and that's now there's no question that that would have imposed more of a cost day to day. You would have soldiers dying there every every year, like you said, like a situation there. But it wouldn't have happened the way this happened. And again, we can debate whether that ultimately this engagement is the right move or not. Um, that's that, that's for that's for you know ultimately as as Lubavitchers as as said mother but we we straight up don't believe that it was, we, we 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 believe it was the wrong move, plain and plain and simple. Like there's no way around it. Like there's no like there's no there's no loopholes in that I, in, in that in, in the Rebbe's the Rebbe's saying look at back an inch of land in exchange for peace. Like it's not a thing you do. But as far as from the historical perspective, like the what what, what in a hundred years they'll, 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 they'll decide whether that ultimately was the right move or not. But whether this attack could have happened the way it happened, it could not have happened. Israel was still in Gaza. Correct, correct, correct. And so, so before the disengagement, exactly, they had whenever there was a certain threat, they had to go with few army vehicles and go into the city of Gaza. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So after disengagement, how long? How long after that does Sharon stay in power? So Sharon probably for like a year. Then he had uh, he had two strokes and one right, right, right. serious one. Right. That so who, who took over after him? Olmert. Olmert. Olmert was in Likud. Yes. Okay, okay, oh, Kadima, okay. Kadima. It was a, yeah, at that point it was yeah. Kadima, right? So Sharon actually split from Likud and from the Likud and to Kadima. If I'm getting my facts right, and I think I do, during the campaign he got the second stroke in the early stage of the campaign. He got the second stroke, and then Omer took over. Got it. And Omer obviously is just a total. <laughs> he's actually comical, Omer. In in which way? His his corruption his corruption story is very funny to me. I mean, well, you're jumping ahead, right? Like the way he, the way he ended, he's maybe the least important prime minister in Israeli history. The least respected, the least like he didn't do anything. He's ever, every other prime minister in Israel history achieved something, whether before they went to the guy into office or while they were in office. Every single one, Olmert, I think, is the only one who literally didn't do a single thing that you could that you could, that you could say, oh yeah, he was impressive in some way, shape, or form. Well, he was well, a bureaucrat, right? His whole career. Okay, so a few things actually, but but again, I'm not here to defend Olmert at all. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I'm from the right wing, and he later became very strong left. But few things actually. I mean, first off, you're wondering about his background. He was a mayor of Jerusalem, right? He was a mayor of Jerusalem. That's kind of what brought him for, for a bunch of years, I believe. I think he was considered a good mayor. I think. Uh, you are right that entering the national level politics, it was kind of like a backbench, actually. I remember he won like, he was like number 20-something seat. and But he became very useful to Sharon during the disengagement. He was a very good uh, kind of political operator behind, behind the scene. And that's what made him jump, that Sharon trusted him and essentially made him deputy. So that's kind of how he jumped. Uh, but I do want to say about his... Uh, um, his term as prime minister, which wasn't too long, but I would say probably he would come to the biggest achievement he did is the still, I believe, unconfirmed um, attack on Syria's nuclear okay. facility that was under him. Okay. That was under okay. him. There you go. So, you learn, so you learn new things every day. If you're like a big Goldmark fan, which I am not, <laughs> uh, one might claim that he prevented the Assad from acquiring nuclear weapon and he did it in a very quiet fashion, not in a bragging fashion. So again, if I would want need to make the case for him, you're not you're not here to defend them. But if you were right. going to defend them, you would say that, right, right. So I'm just saying. I mean, look, and look, 
in terms of unaccomplished prime ministers, he probably competes with Barack and Moshe Sharet. No, but Barack was before joining becoming prime minister. Who's a national hero? He was a big. Oh, was gotcha! A I see what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Like, okay so, so actually, you're right, and I, I see what you're saying in terms of accomplishments before becoming prime, yeah. prime minister. I, I see what you're and saying. Sharet was a founding father of Israel, so like you know, like he was. I hear, yeah, yeah. yeah so Omar was actually, I, I guess, he was actually famous that he was born in a very liquid house. That's what he was saying, <laughs> famous for. And he was a he was a mayor of Jerusalem. That's essentially what you you know he was famous for. It's interesting. Jerusalem did not have too many mayors for decades. There were two. Teddy Kolek, Teddy Kolek was famous. Was sixty seven and all the way to the nineties, I believe. And then Olmert, exactly. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um. So at this point, I think during Olmert's term, that I think the vacation from history for Israel starts. To me, I think after this engagement. Um, there wasn't much more peace, po- peace process going on. I think I think the, the left the left thought that this engagement would cause the Palestinians to come to the table again in beautiful fashion, and they would all be so. Negotiation started again, I think, and the terror kind of stopped. The terror was still there were still obviously occasional incidents, there was, there was, but ever since one after two thousand after the the West Bank operation in two thousand and three, plus the building of the fences. Plus Israel leaving Gaza, which meant that soldiers weren't dying in Gaza anymore. Which again, we can obviously we don't we both agree that it wasn't the right move. But still, soldiers weren't dying in Gaza anymore. I think Israel started. I think that's when the vacation from history kind of starts for Israel, in in my reading of the history. So you're you're right. You're right in many ways. But I want to say that started during Sharon's time, like you said, after building that wall, after the operation of Hamat Magen. You are right. Then then thing that, like you said, overall is always at peace. Incident from time to time, usually in the settlements, you are right. But jumping to Omer, it's time, you're right. That aspect continued. The only thing I would say is that there was actually peace talks. Remember Annapolis? Yeah, yeah. Annapolis, yeah. that was the Latino in Maryland. So that was talks between him and Abu Mazen. He actually made a wild peace gesture then. Um, yeah, I'm not just uh, reminded that, that it, then it didn't become published, but essentially we'll build a Palestinian state. The old city of Jerusalem will go into this international city between Israel, Palestinian state, the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan. And essentially, yeah, giving in almost everything, like 97% of the West Bank, any other percentage that left over, they'll get do a, land the, swap. do a land swap. So yeah, that was a wild thing. At the time, it did not become public. public uh, right, it did not become public. Later on, it did, and Omar confirmed that those were the details. The Arabs, of course, pushed that aside. Abu Mazen, he actually, more precisely, he did not push aside in the in his private talks with Omar. He told him, I'll get back to you on that. Omar is still waiting. <laughs> um, and literally, literally. Is, is Omar still in prison or he's, or he's, or he's out? Omar is out, he's out. Okay. He was there for a short while, he was out. Oh, he's fine. out. Uh, now, I also want to say that Omar had another wild idea, just like those eight not could, the disengagement, there was a plan called eight not eight consult, okay? Which essentially, it's another disengagement from the West Bank. Yes, he actually started promoting it, believe it or not, then the second Lebanon war happened. Again, we're talking about 2007, something like that again. Yeah. I hope I'm getting the years right. Uh, so yeah, so that was back on the shelf. And then the scandals against Omer came. And he essentially, he lost as prime minister at some point. Actually, he held on for a long time. I remember that. And in 2009, he had to, Kadima party, he had to um, give... Tsipi Livni, the the chairmanship, I guess. 
uh, chairperson, I guess, uh, of what's it called, of the Kadima, and there was an election in Tsipi Livni against um, Netanyahu on the other side, and that's when Netanyahu got back into power. And didn't leave for a long time. Correct, did not live for a long time. Melech Bibi. Melech Bibi, yeah, yeah. So here's a good time to talk about Bibi, um, because he's maybe, he's such a fascinating character, because his achievements are absolutely undeniable. What he's done for Israel is undeniable. But I think there's a lot of questions to be had about how he's managed his inevitable, like he's not going to live forever. So... The, the, how he's managed that the end stage of his career has, I think, was a lot of questions we can ask and discuss in a, in a fair way. But um, I think this is fake news. Who said he's not <laughs> going to live forever? I, I don't know. I'm joking. So, Bibi. Yes. Melech Bibi. The elephant in the room. Yeah. So, 2007, he's elected? 2009. 2009, sorry. 2009, he's elected. And... Who is Bibi at this point? What's his public profile? What's his campaign based on? Um, and what are the main issues that are being fought about at this time in, 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 in society? So then already, I mean, Gaza started to become what we know of it today. It started. So it's already it's three years after the disengagement. The Hamas took power, okay, in 2007. That was, that was complicated, right? I mean, they won an election, then they then they purged Fatah from from Gaza. Correct, exactly like you said. Yes, in two thousand six, I believe they won an election of the council or whatever they have in the Gaza in the parliament that they have in Gaza Strip, and then, like you said, the following year they, like you said, they purged and they kicked all the Fatah out. Yes. Okay. So the question is, this is actually part of the story that I'm not fully strong on. Did Israel have any kind of? Did Israel make any kind of um, arrangement with the PLO or the PA to? Do anything in Gaza after they left, or they just said, "Okay, we're gone. Do whatever you want." Uh, oh, okay, okay. So, it's so, so just a question yeah, yeah. again. So, yeah, after yeah. this engagement, I, we should have gone over this. After this engagement, when Israel left, did they make some kind of arrangement with the P, with, with the PA to take over Gaza, or they just said, "We're gone. Do whatever you want." Bye. So the answer is no. They did not do anything, and then, like literally as you describe it, we're gone. Bye. Now, the reason for that at the time, Sharon looked at it that the reason we're doing the disengagement, the Palestinians did not earn it. We're just not willing to pay a price for it. So he did not want to view it or uh, make it look like that there's a price that they're getting for it. And therefore, any formal agreement with the PA as to an arrangement at Gaza would be viewed that Israel is giving it to their hands. So it's kind of like a funny situation. Like we're living in Gaza, but but you, you do not deserve it and we're not making any deal and we're not going to make your life easier to govern over there. Okay, so then practically okay. Israel leaves. Then who takes like what's the what kind of administrative or government structure is in Gaza left left to do anything? So yeah, so the PA, the PA. By the way, by the way, even before. So, so let's just clarify. Even while the settlements were there, the PA was in control in the cities. Oh, there. okay, kind of fine. So I didn't yeah, yeah. know that. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. I thought I, I thought Gaza was under full Israeli administ- administrative control before this engagement. No, no, no. I believe there was still. I, I'm. But pretty sure there was still like Aza, you know, Israel did not have administrative control over Aza. Okay. It's similar to what's happening in Judea and Samaria now in okay. the West Bank. So, that, that, yeah, that yeah. Makes more sense. Yeah. so then then the PA has an election only in Gaza. They have it in across the West Bank, across the West Bank and Samaria and, and uh, or as well. Like how are they I don't remember. We'll have to look into we'll have this. To, we'll have to yeah, yeah, we'll have to Google it. But, how, but however it happens, Hamas yeah. takes over. 
They, right. they, they solidify control by kicking out Fatah. The following year, yeah. And then Israel imposes a military blockade because uh, Hamas is like, oh, we our goal is to destroy Israel. So we are an enemy of Israel. So Israel says, okay, cool. Under military, other international military law and under every conflict in history, when someone says, um, we're going to kill you, you don't let them kill you. That's like what you do. So Israel has a military blockade. That was there just for in case there's any happens any any confused slightly um, any anti-Israel person listening to this podcast, which I imagine there aren't going to be very many of them. But first of all, you're welcome. Thank you for listening. Um, but if if you are, if you were confused as to why Israel has had military uh, Gaza under military blockade since 2007, it is because um, when the government of a country says that our whole reason for existing is to destroy you, you don't give them the means to do that. So you put them under blockade. Um, and that's what, and that's been going on since 2007. And then I think the, the Mavi Marmara happened in 2009, 2008. The Turkish 2009, it was on the BB, so probably 2009, 2010. So then a Turkish yeah. a Turkish ship um, ships I think was a ships, flotilla, flotilla I, I came, believe, to, came yeah. to break the blockade and Israel turned it away and I think some people died. Um, and that was also of course a wonderful controversy for Israel, which they handled masterfully on the PR level, of course. Um, anyways, so BB takes power. What's his? How did he win? What was his slogan? What was his? Or what was his argument? And and what kind of? And and what was the? What was the central fight in that time of, of that election? So, already, it's interesting. I believe that was the first election that peace. No, it's not. Not a slogan by anyone. Okay, not on the right, not on the left. Uh, thou and, and again, why? Because so. Let's try to remember. We do have relative, like you said, relative peace from the West Bank, but that's not a result of the ambivalence or, you know, of the Arabs over there. Rather, it's because our military is there and there's the wall there. And again, this is a, a we, we, Israeli, at this point, Israeli society sees it that way because they know what happened in Oslo a decade before. And in Gaza, we have this whole terror group that is fortifying itself. So... There's no peace on the horizon, and and there was Annapolis that you know was rejected in 2007, 2008 by the what's it called by the um, by the Arabs. So the discussion there was more about it uh, was more about security, which will be kept up, and also it was after the Second Lebanon War, and yeah, that's uh, I would say like the background of the conversation then, um, and uh, yeah, BB BB won. What was he promising? What was he saying? Vote for Bibi and you'll get... Okay, so famously, actually, he would uh, get rid of the Hamas. That was actually f- <laughs> he's famous, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly, oh, no, exactly. That was until today, he's, you know, his political opponents have beat him up for that. So, yeah, that was actually... Fa- he was famous for that. Um, he was famous because he portrayed himself as... What we know of Bibi today is, you know, is this well-rounded, was someone with a vision, has economic ba- background, has a very deep sense of history. So he very much portrayed speaks, himself. Speaks English perfectly. Speaks in, exactly English perfectly. He managed to really unite the liquid under him. A lot of former people that um, really had a, a worries, political enemies within the liquid back in 1999 that we said then just failed. Benny Begin, Dan Meridor, this is different writing. They kind of came under his wing, so he really united all of them. He brought a lot of new blood to the Likud, a, a, a Boogie Alone among them and others. So, so yeah, that's how he won. He won He won only one seat more than Sipi Livni. No, I'm sorry. Sipi Livni actually won one seat more than Bibi, funny enough. 
I believe it was 28 seats, Sipilivni, and 27 him, I believe. Uh, but he was by far, he had the right wing block behind him. You know, the Haredim and Ayhuda and Leumi then. So, so yeah, so, so, um, so he won. And he built coalition. Interesting enough, he built coalition with Ehud Barak. Um, he was the first one to come in and he came as defense minister. Okay. From the Labor Party, he came in. Oh, so at that point, Likud and Labor were in government together. Yes, yes, yeah. And Kadima, the, cent- the center party, was out. Correct. That's very interesting. You got it right, yes. That's so interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. wow. At some point in the middle of the term, they actually came in as well. There was actually, maybe at some point, coalition of like 90 members, say, something like wow. that. Yeah, yeah. At some point, Shaul Mufaz joined in with Kadima. Yeah, yeah. For a short time, for a short time. And then there was election anyway. That was literally when Time Magazine framed him King Baby. If it, that image that you remember, it was during that time where he completely, Israeli politics went um, completely behind him. So what did he do with this power? How did he, how did he go about because the security issue is not a live issue. Obviously, it's a constant thing that has to be managed, but it's not a live issue. So what does he spend his time on? How does he try to change Israel? So I think here maybe we'll get to the personality of Bibi and then explain how he formed that, you know, formed politics there in, in his personality. And here this way I corrected you about the big fan. In just in one sentence, and then I'll explain myself. I, I mean, I criticize Bibi for many things, and, and I don't see eye to eye with him on a bunch of issues, on many issues I do. I, I think as a right-winger, and I think a, 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 someone from the right wing in Israel in general, at the end of the day, they're happy with Bibi and they re-elect him because they see that at the end of the day, he's an effective right-wing leader that, that uh, advances right-wing agenda. And, and let me just explain in short. I would say that Bibi, and this is what people need to get about him, he's a very careful, conservative a politician. Small c conservative. Leader. Not conservative ideologically. Conservative in, conservative in personality. Correct. Exactly. Conservative. So people view him as like, he likes wars, he likes change. That, that, I mean, his opponents, especially from the left. He, like you said, in terms of he doesn't like to rock the boat, he does not like to make big changes, he believes in... If you want something to last, you need to do incremental changes. So there are many examples of that, but let me I'll give you one example, and this to, to also illustrate to you why, why the right wing is happy with him. Uh, this is an example you have, let's say, about the issue of the settlements, okay? So, of course, if you're a typical right wing, you know, maybe more a solid right wing, you want annexation, you want, you know, uh, huge buildings, Netanyahu says, no, 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 no. You can't make these huge things. It's going to rock the boat, bring instability, won't last. Let's do small changes towards that direction. So I think, in my my understanding, no one will dispute that during Bibi's 10 years, I mean more, settlements grew by a lot. Building, infrastructure, a lot. The population... And in the population of the of, of the settlers, and that's by doing it slowly in the right direction. Today, there's a reality that you can it would be in, almost impossible to build a Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria. I mean, you have all the clusters. You have, depending how you're defining it, you have about six hundred thousand, even more settlers. Again, depending what you consider the settlements, you know, Jerusalem and other areas. 
but but even even in the even in what's called the Nachalot Mevudadot, the, the lonely settlements and things. The hilltops. The hilltops, exactly. You have almost a hundred thousand settlers, exactly. Now think about it. The disengagement, which was a huge operation, was twenty thousand, yeah. exactly. So so Bibi believes that that you do the right wing slowly and you get there. You create facts on the ground slowly. Slowly without confrontation. I'm I'm not. So he had to thought his a. Manage coalitions, manage relationships with America. Control them. This and that. So that's the BB's leadership in general, many areas. Now, now, so so for many right wingers, he's advancing our agenda, and I would say that's where I come in. So I believe he's a very effective leader. Uh, I'll tell you what one area that I don't I don't think a judicial reform, for example, BB does not want a judicial reform. He views that as it did. You. Stabilizing, you're, you're waking you're up the rocking nest. establishment. Don't pick that fight. He was forced into it because he's based, including myself, forced him into it. I mean, he lost the center and the left, and so he needed to go to the hard right in order. And as a price, they had to get to the judicial reform. Correct, correct. The center and the left boycotted him, and he would he would much prefer working with the center. Correct. And this is where I don't like him for that. So that's what I'm saying. I won't. I won't describe myself as a big B fan. I think overall, over since to again till this, what you know, till October seventh. But I think he advances very much right wing in terms of security, in terms of settlements and peace process, the way the right likes it. You know, right. without okay, giving land or anything like that. So so yeah. So that's how I view Netanyahu in general and his personality and his, um, as a leader. From the outside looking in, Bibi seems to have really two driving goals um, for Israel. I mean, I think he's been fairly successful in those two goals. And I think, I think I, obviously, what this latest, um, this latest, um, I don't know what the word for it is, I don't know what word to use for October it. October 7th. This disaster is going to severely, severely tarnish, tarnish his legacy, um, no matter what else happens. But um, I think in the long view of history, Bibi transformed Israel economically and, and, and diplomatically. And I think both those things were very long, were very big goals of his going into it. Um, so that's, I think that's, a, a, I, so what would you, how would you, how would you look at his, um, his efforts to, on those two directions? Uh, on the, uh, economy, the economy, the yeah. economy and, 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 and international diplomacy. Yeah. So on the economy, I mean, like you said, he achieved really a lot um, in terms of the gas exploration. You need to understand he had to fight a lot of Israeli bureaucracy for that. Uh, he also, like, he also, I think, sort of from a libertarian perspective, sort of liberalized big parts of the economy, import export taxes, this that, like a lot of changes. Where Israel's a f- like Israel's Israel's high tech sector could not have happened the way it did without him opening things up a little bit. Correct, correct. So, so, so by the way, just we jumped on that, but actually, it's interesting. He started these big reforms as a, a finance minister in 2003 under Sharon. Ah, uh, okay. Big reforms against the unions, very, very tough things. Now, what's interesting, very interesting then is that Sharon, he was second guy in the Likud. So Sharon made him finance minister in hope that that kind of would kill him, you know, meaning <laughs> that he'll be... Bibi said he's willing to do it, but as long as he has like a, a blank check from Sharon that he could do whatever he wants as a finance minister. And Sharon then was busy again with Chomat Magen, with that operation. So, you you know, so yeah, he started this big, I guess you could say libertarian again, it's Israeli version of it, but uh, 
but correct steps towards to that and as a, again again going against the unions there um, I think allowing much more free flow of, of funds of, uh, of of money in and out of Israel and allowing competition yeah and we've seen the fruits of that Israel has been very successful the last two decades economically it's been a massive massive success story massive like you said massive uh, Israel GDP is up to par with uh, with the Western world and higher than many countries in the Western world. Um, yeah, I believe now it's like maybe 40,000 already. I'm not telling you a per, per capita. Israel used to be a, a poor country, like a very poor country. Right, right. Well, yes, it used to be, I think in our in our mem- memorable life, I think it used to be like a middle-income yeah. country. Um, I don't know if you would describe it today, like, I don't know, like Chile, if that's the right word. I'm trying to think about uh, middle. Your average South American country where things are like, you know, right, just right. okay, but not amazing. Right. And yeah, he turned it into a wealthy, brought into the OECD. Uh, yes, yes. You know, I was just uh, just now in Israel and just the infrastructure there is amazing. The, you see the highways, the trains, the metro systems, and really a country in building, a, a country in big progress. Uh, so yes, under that was under uh, exactly and the water projects, the 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 it's pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. But then diplomatically, I think is another big thing as well. I think Bibi had a vision of and tell me if I'm wrong about this. I think he had a vision of that the U Israel could not continue to just be a client state of the United States. It needed to sort of stand on its own diplomatically around the world. And I think his Africa efforts have failed, but I think in Asia, they've been very successful. I think in South America and Europe, they've been successful. Israel has built trade relationships and diplomatic relationships with a lot of countries. All the while, those countries were like saying, oh, we hate Israel because it's, you know, we're voting against you at the UN for various, you know, Palestinian stuff. But at the same time, there were still deepening trade relationships because Israel had them something to offer now on the high tech side, on the, on the technology side. And... Also, I think I think Bibi did a really, really incredible job of positioning Israel as an alternative to Iran in the Middle East, and getting Arab countries to like sign on with them. Now, the Arab people are still hate Israel, but the Arab governments, I think, are made a very big switch over from realizing that like the Palestinian issue is dead for us. It doesn't matter. We can only lose there, and so it's it's in our best interest to work with Israel diplomatically, um, and establish trade relations and 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 you know, and work together. What's your view on that? Correct. I just want you made a side comment that 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 felt in Africa. I'm not sure you basing it off what. I just want to remind you that uh, Abraham Accord essentially two African countries joined. True. In. Okay. North Morocco, Africa. Morocco, North, North Africa is Africa. Morocco and Sudan. <laughs> That's right. Besides, our Africa is still Africa. No, but even in Sub-Saharan, I believe that there were few countries. I, I don't recall that they actually opened embassies in Israel. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, Africa, I think maybe Israel's interest in Africa, just like probably the rest of the world, unfortunately, it sounds sad, but it's not like deep interest in Africa. I, I would push back on that a little bit because I think China's, and this was again, digression and digression and digression for our main point of the podcast, but, um, China has, sh- China has shown and Russia actually has shown as well that you can sort of buy friends in Africa pretty cheaply. If you just make the right relationships and invest in some infrastructure projects there and sort of get on, get it on the ground, and Israel has the technical know-how to do that, and I think that Israel is doing that. There's plenty of places across Africa where Israeli contractors and companies are involved. Sure, but that has not translated into diplomatic access or success right. in a lot of these countries. Okay, so I think I, th- I think that's a failure. I think I think Israel should have done a better job of sort of offering an integrated package of technological assistance, economic assistance, plus diplomatic relations to a lot of these African countries. 
would make a big difference at this point because Africa is a swing vote right now in the UN and on the international stage. The UN, yeah. the UN is theater, but theater still ends up mattering. I think Israel could have bought itself a bunch, a bunch of friends in Africa right. over the last two decades if they had handled it a little bit better. But that's, right. that's, okay. that's, a, very, that's a small quibble. Yeah. Yeah. That's a small quibble. But anyways, yeah. so Bibi has a, basically a 10-year run of doing this where he's managing his coalition. Years, yeah. He's managing his coalition. He keeps cycling in and out parties. He keeps winning elections, sometimes close, sometimes big. He's, he, has a, he's, he dominates Israeli politics for a very long time. He also makes the left and a lot of the center hate his guts. And the question to me, this is the part I don't understand because it shouldn't have gone that way. Temperamentally, he's aligned with them. Politically, he's aligned with a large part of the center. Economically, diplomatically, those are all immense center line, main line goals. How did Bibi lose the center? So my version of it, at least I guess you could say, is that the essentially it's down to the to 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 the controlled controlling establishment of the media, of culture, of the judicial body, that they see BB as a big threat. A big threat because in their perspective, BB was supposed to be one of them. It was supposed to be someone like, you know, this perfect educated person that was supposed to advance the, the, um, the left uh, agenda. But they view him that he's someone very dangerous that advances the right-wing agenda. So they start portraying him as this corrupt person, this uh, divisive person, um, and, and they, they inspire a lot of hatred against him. That's my version. Do you think, so then in your version of the story, does BB start courting more of the right wing and using the like anti-Arab rhetoric that he used during some elections as a response to that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there's one statement he made. I don't know if you mean that one rhetoric, literally one statement he made about the Arabs. He no, did, meaning by where he, for the last like four elections, he goes out week before and says the Arabs are voting you better go vote. So, so he, he, Sean Bear, with all the respect, there's one election that he made such a statement. You are right. You are right. Uh, he very famously said, uh, the Arabs are, are flocking to what's it called? To the, poll the, the polling. To the polling. polling. And probably that gave him, clinched him that election, that <laughs> statement that later he officially apologized. But that's one time, one statement. And you see in, in the media, and see, you, you, I think you usually, you actually see through that. Well, the problem is that it's easy to see through the American versions of these narratives because I speak English and I hear it, but what this is, a, this is a larger point here. I only have access to the version of Israeli politics that I get through the English-speaking Israeli establishment, and that's predominantly, 90% of that, of that establishment is going to be center-left, center-right, skeptical of BB, skeptical of this, like skeptical of extremism, so to speak, quote-unquote, like that's the version I'm going to get. So that that those that kind of person, just to use an example, like a, I don't know, Noga Tarnopolsky, I don't know who her name is, like just a random Israeli journalist that I follow sometimes, or like or Aviva Kampias, or or Yaakov Katz from the Jerusalem Post, like people like that, like like they're, they're I'm I'm sure they're not bad people, but they are center center left. Add Carolyn Glick. Yeah. I see Carolyn Glick, but the problem. So the, here's the problem. You know, what? this is actually a problem of myself. I have a bias towards discounting people who I agree with ideologically, where I don't really engage with their arguments because I already agree with you. I don't, I don't, I don't need to really learn what you have to say. I, obviously, I agree with you. I, I, have I, to have read, as well. I don't have to read Caroline Licker or Not Wolf 
or, or Eugene Kantorovich, because I already I know I agree with them. Martin Kramer is more interesting to me because Martin Kramer is more is different because like I have to I, I, I see value in engaging people who I disagree with to learn what they have to say. So, but the problem is that if you don't do an, if you don't correct yourself occasionally by like reengaging with your roots, to use a tortured metaphor, you can you can fall prey to those false narratives, which I guess interesting insight into into how people sort of drift politically from where they come from because they because they think they already understand their own arguments, they don't have to talk to them anymore. That's that's, a, that's a, again an aggression on aggression. But so your version of the story, Melech Bibi, who is doing a really pretty freaking great job, is forced to go more and more right wing because the left sees him as a threat because he's such a competent leader, because he's just moving Israel steadily in this direction. And so they go nuclear on him and they paint him as a, the world's biggest criminal just because that's the only way to deal with him in their mind. And so he loses, the, he loses the left, he loses the center, so he has to go almost all right. Correct. Okay. Correct. And even while doing that, he has to kind of control the right, right not, to allow, not to allow it to go wild. So I saw somebody write that Bibi is such a good politician that he keeps... He, he keeps identifying the, his greatest threat to the right, bring them into the coalition, give them a position of power, and letting them fail. So then he can bring in the next person and do that again. In this version, in that version like of Israel, of the way Bibi manages his coalition, like he, keeps finding, he keeps finding the next right superstar, brings them into the coalition, gives them a big job, lets them fail at the big job, and then goes to the next one. So there is a lot of truth to that, but, but not entirely, I would say, is that within his own party, Within the Likud party, he does not want to see any rivals. And that is true that anyone he sees as a threat, he either ship them to be ambassadors somewhere <laughs> or put them in a position that would, would inevitably they would fail. That is true. And and that is probably a lot of a lot of criticism against Bibi that that he he doesn't, you know. Look, he's just is a very good politician. If you're just talking about just politics. Oh, talent-wise, he's I think right. he's the most talented Western politician of the last 30 years, 40 years. Like he's, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe Angela Merkel in Germany comes close. I have no idea. I don't know enough about German politics, but she also ran a coalition for 20 years. But Right, right. But, 13, I believe. Yeah. Years, but yeah. Yes, yes, correct. But that's that's uh, the only person I can think uh, of. Correct, correct. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so, so again, and, and that definitely is something to his discredit. And people, a lot. so see, let, let's take that. The fact that you're hiring people and you, you put them in positions that they would fail. So that itself is something negative, but one side would say, oh, that inevitably means that Israelis are losing in some areas, some ministries therefore will not be functioning. They're not doing their potential, which there's a lot of truth to that. On the other hand, we would argue, the other side would argue is that, could you point to me where Israel did not make progress in the past 10 years? So, so yeah, but yeah, in a sense, and that being said, Israel is a very prospering country. Yeah, overall. So, but, no but, but again, there's just two sides to that. And and this is look, I'm not. This is the point is that I won't call myself a big fan because Bibi is complicated, just like all politics right. is. But ultimately, ultimately, you respect him and you see him as the best option most of the time. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Well said. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. So then, unfortunately, we have to turn on a dime here. Um. Bibi has a long run. He's successful. He fights off. He loses. He loses. He loses to Bennett and, uh, and Lapid, and he's back in power. Um, and he's 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 desperate now. I think. I think in uh, a desperate. It, it, I think he to get back into power, he had to make a lot of sacrifices. I think he crossed some lines they never would have crossed before. I think Smotrich and Ben Gvir, he would never in a million years ne let into his coalition at any point 
until he absolutely was forced to it, had no other option. The actual like hardcore part, like right wing factions in Israel that want to annex the West Bank, they want to they want to talk about openly talk about um, doing population transfers. They want like the, like that's the part of the Israeli politics that I think a lot of Lubavitchers probably fall into. I think I think I, I, I think my instincts are with that group, but politically they're losers and have been losers for a very long time because the language the language they use just doesn't fit. For, for, it's not language fit for statesmanship in the 21st century. You can't go on TV and say these things if you're if you're a country that has to rely on other countries for trade and diplom diplomacy. Like China can say whatever they want because China can do whatever they want. Russia can do whatever they want. The U.S. can do whatever they want. But if you're Israel, you can't have people in front of the mic in front of the entire world saying the things that Smotrich and Ben-Gvir say on a regular basis. But he has no choice. He brings them in. And obviously because of that, he has to, in order to bring them in, he has to promise them judicial reform which turns over as a society for a year. Now, I'm pro-judicial reform, you're pro-judicial reform, but I don't know if we're pro-doing it the way they did it. But that's a larger discussion. But the point is, it happened. It's happening. Israel is distracted. It's, again, a moment of vacation from history where Israel feels like they can address these very large issues, these large, like Israel doesn't have a constitution. What is the role of the Supreme Court in this society? What is the role of government? Are we a democracy? Are we a constitutional or Like, what are we? Like, what is going on? The Ashkenazi left is looking around and noticing that they're about to become irrelevant on every front. They lost the government. They lost large parts of the economy. They lost the military. Like, what do they have left? All they have left is the media and the judiciary. And they're about to lose that too. So, like, they, they put up the fight of their life and they're fighting. And then this happens. 10-7 happens. How did it happen? Was the country just distracted? Was was there was there a conceptia, so to speak, that was just didn't didn't, didn't allow for the possibility that Hamas, which has been managed, it's been a managed problem, per Bibi fashion, he's been managing the Hamas problem. He's been giving them. Well, it wasn't. I don't think it started with him. Did it start with him? The work permits with Gaza, or he, he for sure continued it. The 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 really government had a policy of he probably took it to the next level. We're, yeah. we're, Hamas is going to moderate. They're actually a government now. We're going to give them economic assistance. We're going to let Gazans into work. We're going to do all the different things. Um, we're gonna we're gonna. I don't know how tightly the blockade has been enforced. I have no idea how they managed to get the weaponry, the, the, the weapons they've got. Into how, and I, I don't understand if the, if the Israeli Navy is not a joke. How did they get this stuff? Smug I don't smuggled through Egypt. All of it. A lot, a lot of it. Doesn't doesn't Egypt also have a tight border? With uh, with apparently, or, apparently obviously not. not. Yeah, yeah. So the that's 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 where we're. How did we get here? How did this happen? How did how did we get to the worst day for? Jewish people since the Holocaust. How did this happen? In short, first of all, obviously we'll need to investigate this and see of what course. happened. And But what it seems like, I would say, is the following, is that um, complacency, which, how was it expressed? Israel had an attitude, and this is Netanyahu in part, that we don't want to confront any issues we don't want to put wars. We don't wear a good status quo like you described before. Our economy is great. We have a, we're living a prosperous life. We can manage with, with whichever threats we'll have. How? Either we'll create our dome system, you know, a wall, lasers. We'll give the Hamas some working permits and some money to keep them quiet. So essentially, Israel lost in the past 20 years any willingness to fight the war. And there was a certain conception is that whatever threats will come up, we can deal with it. 
We can deal, we don't have to actually go in. We can deal with it from the defensive position. That I would say in short. Now, Netanyahu was, that's very much his mindset as well. He did, remember, he does not want to confront things. Now, we can actually ask, because, I mean, what was Netanyahu supposed to do if the army, the Shabak, the Israel National Security Council, all tell him war will not be happening, Hamas has no interest to do that, they're defeated, etc. So what Bibi should have done, I mean, or maybe if he didn't have such mindset, maybe he would have sh shaken up the system that, you know, they won't report to him, something like that, you know, a system that won't have such complacency. So that's, you know, right. I'm sorry, I'm like jumping between no, no, the no, defense and offensive. But, but, but essentially, essentially, I would say that that is what caused that, that mindset that we don't want a war, we're obsessed about not wanting a war, therefore, any issues you'll bring up from the defensive will deal with it. So you essentially have an army that was built for the past 20 years to, to be in the, to defend. Yeah. Um, yeah. That all seems, yeah, that all seems unfortunately correct. There's been attempts to blame BB for this by saying that he got intelligence that he ignored. Obviously, if that's true, we'll find out and, you know, he'll get destroyed for it. But I'm assuming that's not true. I assume so as well. It assume, comes from journalists that yeah, are not reliable. Right. Also, it comes from Egypt. Like, like, right. like, CC may be Israel's uh, partner in managing the situation, but right. he's not. Doesn't he, he has no love for Israel, and his government doesn't have any love for Israel. Like, I, 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 I don't, I don't believe any of that. But that's just, until I see evidence of it. Yeah, but today or yesterday, actually, Bibi had a tweet saying yes, that, that last night, last that night, last night, last night, Bibi like, tweet. randomly tweeted. Right. Um, on the eve of Israel actually going into Gaza, that, which is that, genius of his part, that actually I didn't know anything, and the army told me that, it's the all Shabak fine. The Shabak army that yeah, all yeah, told but, me no, but he took it down. He took that that tweet. Yeah. But but probably that was a reality. Look, the army was surprised. We know that for a fact. We know that for a fact, of course. That the army was surprised. The Shabak was surprised. Right. So, 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 yeah. I think yeah. in Israel, in, there's a tendency to identify in Israel that the prime minister is the leader of the war, the leader, the leader of, the, of the army. I don't think that's true in Israel. I think I think generals in Israel kind of get to run their own show, for the most part. As far as like the actual practical details, I think in the United States there's much more of an idea that the United that the, that the president is the commander in chief, right? That's actually his job. Like he's supposed to be the commander in chief. I don't know if I don't know if that's I don't know if that's the formally in Israeli in Israeli law as well. That the prime minister is the commander he's, in chief. It's not like here that he's a commander in chief. I mean, they're under the Ministry of Defense. Right, uh, which essentially is the head of the government. So right. the Shabak is more under the the prime minister, actually. So the but the blaming Bibi for the details of military strategy and tactics, I think, is a silly thing. But I do. We'll, we'll get to we'll, we'll get to a question when we, to end this to end this conversation. We'll talk about like what we would have done differently and what we should be doing differently now. Like our our opinions because we're both military geniuses and PR geniuses. Absolutely, and we'll talk about that. But um, I think. There's things we could have done differently, but I don't think you could blame him for the actual military tactical decisions that have been made over the last 20 years. They worked. They, kept, they mostly kept Israel safe. They, they 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 provided a backdrop against which the Abraham Accords could happen, against which normalization efforts could happen. I, I don't think this, if Israel was engaged in a in and if Israel would have, for example, let's say, would have gone into um, Lebanon again, let's say in 2014, to destroy Hezbollah once and for all, right? Justified thing. I'd be pro it. You'd be pro it. We'd, we'd all say yes. Go ahead, do it. Amazing. I don't think that would that would cause tens of thousands of people to die, and I don't think um, the UAE or Saudi Arabia or or Egypt or Morocco or Tunisia could contemplate working with Israel in such a context. So, I think the strategy, if 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 Bibi's priority was was the diplomatic efforts, 
um, the Israel's, Israel's military posture over the last 20 years actually does make strategic sense. Tactically, on the ground, if you're a defensive position, you have to make sure that you can actually defend. And I do think that it's a, a pretty unfortunate thing that Israel has come so much to identify itself as a, as a country of technology that they thought they could get away with policing the border with Gaza just by technology. That to me is the biggest, is, is, is maybe the biggest conceptual mistake. It never works. Going, going back any time through history, any time a country comes to rely on some kind of constructed thing or, or fortification or technology as their defense, it never works. France and the Maginot Line in, in, in World War II. Bar-Lev Line. The Bar-Lev Line, Kippur, Kippur War. Like the idea that you could just put up a, a wall and have remote, con remote control machine guns remote control machine guns with a couple of women and like playing with Xbox controller in a shelter somewhere running them. That to me is a, a huge conceptual failure. And I think it actually speaks to Israeli society as a whole more than it does to just the military or BB. But that's my take on it. But going back in the, in the, in the strategic sense, Israel's decision to engage with Hamas in this way, where on the one hand, they work with them. On the other hand, they say, this is a terrorist organization. Those to me don't compute. You can't say that this organization is illegitimate and we can't work with them. And therefore the blockade has to go on forever while at the same time actually working with them. At least not if you want to have some kind of coherent public relations message to the world as to why you're doing this. Gaza has been hurting Israel PR wise and then strategically because of the PR leads to, the PR leads, leads, leads to, leads to facts on the ground for Israel strategically all the time. It's been a bleeding sore for Israel for 20 years, ever, ever since, the, ever since the, the blockade. Gazan people are suffering. Every, every round of violence causes Gazan civilians to die. What are they dying for? What are our people dying for? Why, are we, why, do Israel, why, does, why does Israel spend 5% of their life in a bomb shelter in, in the South? What, what is that, what, what's, the, what's the purpose of that? That, to me, is the failure of Bibi in this way that I think allowed this to happen. The idea that this untenable thing could be managed infinitely, the West Bank, I think, is different. The West Bank, I think, there is no actual solution. And in true right-wing sense, there is no solution there. Like, either the, either, 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 either the Palestinians or the West Bank will have a change of heart or they won't, and they'll change or they won't. Israel has no choice but to do what they're doing in the West Bank. But in Gaza, there were, there were different paths forward here. They could have gone in and taken out Hamas at any point and put a new leadership. They could have gotten the, the, the world more involved in the sense of like, okay, you... You care about this so much, Ireland? You come in and put in, a, put in a peacekeeping force. You come in and invest in the infrastructure here. Like, why are we doing it? Why are we getting it? Why are we dealing with this? Why are we, why are we supplying water and electricity and fuel to this place? And also blockading it at the same time. Like, what are we doing? That, to me, the failure to answer that question, I think, is the failure that led to this. And I think that can be laid at BB's feet. And I, wonder, I would love to hear your, perspective, your, 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 your idea on that. Yeah. So you said a few, few things. Um, I would actually also be critical... Uh, about BB, about this, but but I want to say a few things. First of all, in terms of you, you mentioned a side point about the messaging. Where you, what what I understood from you is that how could Israel, on one hand, try to delegitimize Hamas and its government and you know terrorist group, etc. On the other hand, make all these deals with it. So right. So I want to mention. I mean, I, I don't view that as something so um, in terms of messaging so contradicting. I mean, remember the United States. Uh, with Cuba for 
that case was delegitimizing it. Yet all the all those years that it, there's a special until it became officially an embassy in Havana, there was the U.S. interest section. I forgot what it's called. This big tower advanced all U.S. interests that it has in Cuba because obviously it's inevitable. Cuba it's a southern island and there's a big Cuban population in the U.S. And even as you're viewing it as its enemy and you're not legitimizing its government, you have to do some sort of deals with it. Uh, same thing is true with the U.S. and Iran. I believe like in the Swedish embassy, maybe there's a U.S. interest section that they still do. So, so I just view it that, that, that look, I mean, I mean, on one hand, sure, I mean, they're not legitimate organization. On the other hand, it's just it's a huge population that lives very close to you, only tens of miles from major cities in Israel, that you have to deal with it. So that's about that contradiction, I would say. I would just say it's just it's common. Um, I would, look, look, I would say like this. Uh, you know, it's interesting, your point about, you know, that defensive really strategy never worked. I didn't think about that, you know, in terms of that scope of history. No, I, I, to be clear, I think defense could work as long as it's based on you actually, your people do the defending. Your army does the defending. Your maneuver-based uh, technology, defending. Not, not technology, not technology. Not, not, like, not like, oh, we're defended because we have a wall now. We're hiding behind our wall or we're hiding behind our satellites or or drones or or, or interesting that to Did the me, wall of china work at the time I well, the wall of china worked intermittently it worked and it didn't work but it, uh, it, it wouldn't have stood up to any kind of determined defense it just made it harder for barbarian for like nomadic Longo. tribes to cross mm-hmm. it just made it harder but it, it didn't make it impossible but it made it harder and ultimately i don't think well also warf- warfare was different back then like you couldn't mm-hmm. move as fast and as whatever, so it's different. But gotcha. I, I'm not actually a military strategist, so I can't answer that question honestly. But gotcha. I, 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 I can't I, I can't answer that question reliably with detail, whatever. But I, in, in modern history, technology never lasts as a defense, and any country that allows itself to rely on technology as its first line of defense will eventually lose. Will eventually suffer a serious loss because right. of that. Interesting. Interesting. Now, now, and I'll just sort of very quickly, I would say like this, you're going to be, look, look. So again, Bibi's mindset was, we can control this. I don't want to rock the boat. I want to be laser focused on the peace deal, on my vision for peace, etc. The army assured him, yes, we could do this. You know, this and that. Now, throughout the time, you did have minority among the generals, but you had such a voice saying, you cannot. You have to go deal with Gaza. You're scared right now of the operation. You'll have 500 people dead. Well, you're going you're gonna to have to pay that price later on, as we see in a much greater numbers, even before entering. And people on the right wing and the right of Bibi also warned them about it. Now, you could be critical of Bibi saying that, why didn't you listen to those voices? Maybe your job as prime minister is to shake up the army establishment and not. But remember, the army establishment was very comfortable for Bibi for his vision. So... This is, I would say, very much a place you can criticize me before, and we'll we'll have to see exactly, you know. Right. Uh, so, just to push back on your pushback, you mentioned that the U.S. and Cuba is an example of a contradiction that actually is tenable. It works. That's because the U.S. gets to do things that nobody else could, nobody else gets to do because we're the most powerful country on earth. It's different for us. We don't pay the price for these things. We get to have very silly policies, and it not bite us in the, and it not hurt us. The Cuba, America's Cuba policy is insane. It has been insane. The embargo should have been dropped a very long time ago. Cuba has not been a threat to us for a very long time. The only reason it still exists, the U.S. policy towards Cuba, is because Florida is a swing state, and there's thousands of Cubans there who vote, and they hate the country of Cuba. They want Cuba to be overthrown, and they want, they want the, you know, that's the only reason we still have that policy towards Cuba. 
<laughs> that's literally the only reason. It makes no sense. And it actually does, if the US, if if if, if it was a policy of, for example, if, if it wasn't the United States versus Cuba, if it was um, Mexico versus Cuba, it would really hurt Mexico. It would really hurt, it would really hurt Mexico for that. It would hurt them internationally. It would hurt them in legitimacy. It would, it would hurt them in the resources it takes to enforce that policy. It would hurt Mexico, very seriously. Israel can't afford to do dumb things like that because the U.S. doesn't have to spend its day justifying its existence to the entire world. Israel does. Israel, Israel, Israel lives. Israel is fighting an everyday battle on the PR war, even if even if there hasn't been a shot fired in months in anger in Israel, even if even if you're in a period of time where f for five years a rocket hasn't been fired for some reason, Israel fights for its existence every single day in front of the cameras and the microphones, and to allow the situation in Gaza to continue with no strategy for ending it with no strategy for explaining it to the world in a coherent way, I think has hurt Israel very tremendously. And this is a counterfactual, at this point it's too late, but I always thought that Israel should have said that we recognize Hamas as the government of Gaza. We recognize Gaza as an independent Palestinian state. That's it, it exists. How that would have changed things. Then you say we're at war with this country. We are at war with the country of Gaza. You are no longer occupying the territory of Gaza. You're no longer having an open air prison. You're saying, here's the country of Gaza, has a border with Israel, has a border with Egypt. The government of Gaza has declared war on us, so therefore we are at war with them. We are denying them the weaponry they need to attack us. That is such a more coherent explanation. And you say that over and over again, and you keep it straight. It's so it's, you don't have to say terrorist organization, but also the innocent Gazans are being destroyed, are being, are being, are being, uh, are being, are being oppressed by their evil Hamas captors. And uh, they, when, whenever, whenever they fight, we have an iron dome to defend ourselves, and whenever they fire missiles at us, we have to attack. Where civilian casualties are bad, but we're really sorry we have no choice. Like, no, it's war. War is easy to understand. War is bad, everyone hates war, but war is easy to understand. And if Israel's message was, we're at war with this country, which we recognize as an independent state, Hamas is the government of this independent state, we recognize it, we're at war with this country, and the war will end when they stop fighting us, and anybody who wants the civilians of Gaza to stop dying should do their best to end the war by convincing Hamas to stop fighting us or convincing the government of Gaza to stop fighting. Stop calling them Hamas, call them the government of Gaza. Like that, that's, maybe I'd be wrong about that, but that the point is something, an idea like that, something where you actually get to make a coherent explanation to the world about what it is you're doing there, makes things, it, it, helps, it, helps, it helps the world understand why, who and why, you, who, and who you are and what you're doing. It, it, it's, it's, to me, that's a very easy opportunity that was missed for a very long time. I think there are other opportunities like that that are going on that are being missed and have been missed by BB and other Israeli governments. In general, the PR war Israel has run for the last 20 years is an absolute national scandal and an embarrassment and everyone involved with it should suffer some way. Um, but anyways, so that's... Suffer professionally. Professionally, not yeah. personally. You know, they're all, they're all Jews and they should all have right. wonderful um, lives. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, so that's, that's, where, that's where I come from on that, on, that, on that subject. Okay, so we discussed how we got here. Um, and who's, who is to blame? The question is here is, is what to do from here? Like we're now. So when we first started, when this first happened, we're, we're, we're on a, we're on a few, uh, we're, we're on a chat together. We're on a WhatsApp chat. And you were very upset that Israel had, wasn't doing anything yet. And I think, I imagine you're still upset at the way they're doing what, what they are doing or not doing, or, or at least you have different, but when, when, when you first understood the enormity of what happened, what did you want Israel to do as a response? So it's interesting. You're right. Initially, the army treated it as this is like another campaign. And, and I was very upset about that. And even then I said, 
I do believe the Israelis will come into their senses and at some point they'll come a war, but the question is how long would they wait? So I would say that while what I was upset that it took them time to understand that we're fighting a war now and and there's just different, you know, we have to to um to charge a price differently. I do think after three weeks, I think they're much better, you know, in terms of what they were supposed to do. I think I think what they're supposed to do and it's what they're doing right now. It's it's starve off Hamas. It's you know it's the bombing campaign. Just initially, you're right. I was very upset because it took them a very long time to, I believe, come to their senses and you know recognize that this is a war. This is no longer a campaign, and therefore you know you know you need to bomb accordingly. Um, and again, I, I did say I do think at some point they'll right. come to them, but it will, it, it will take them time. And I think I think they did in many ways. Um, Look, it's very hard to, in terms of the current destruction that is happening, I think we know. Otherwise, what's a strategy here? We don't know we much, don't know. Uh, which I think it's good. I think that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, but but so we'll have to see. Well, the test of time we'll have to see. But but what it seems to be now, I think it seems uh, um, something that I'm that I'm happy. I mean to say that happy, I approve yeah, yeah. of that. Yeah, happy, of that. happy. Yeah, right, right. Not happy. I wish we weren't in this situation, but yeah. Did Look, you... essentially, I think, I mean, I'm just jumping ahead, but I think we need to go back in. Essentially, Gaza Strip will need to be like the West Bank, where the Israeli army is present there. I think that's the end of the day. That's, 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 that's a little different from what you were saying of just, not a little different. It's a little different from what other people are saying. For example, have you seen Naftali, Benef, Naftali Bennett's uh, plan? I, I did, it's, it's interesting. People shared it with me. I didn't read There's so much information. You know, something interesting is people share so much information and it's good and could be the best, but I, it's interesting. I my my strategy is about this information that I, the same channels that they kept all along. I'm keeping now, <laughs> so whoever my people that I listen right, right. to, I just listen to that. So so I don't know, but I'm curious. What's your thinking? So, what's so Naftali Bennett's plan actually is in line with what I was thinking. Um, there's a line with what I was thinking. Naftali Bennett actually knows much more about this, and he's whatever. My, my initial instincts about this were that Israel needs to cut off Gaza in the sense that it needs to make it literally physically impossible for Gaza to attack Israel again. And I want, and I, I want to use the word Gaza again because I, I don't want to use the word Hamas. The word Hamas to me is a distraction. It makes it harder for everyone listening to understand what you're actually saying. Gaza. It is Gaza. When, 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 uh, when any, when any, any, there's a lot of countries around the world that are run by a dictatorship, right? People don't say Putin is attacking Ukraine. They say Russia is attacking Ukraine. Does every Russian want to do this? I have no idea. Probably not. Majority of the Russians, I don't think, would, would choose to have this war. But they're doing it because Putin runs it. But that's, Russia is doing this. Gaza is doing this. I don't. I personally don't want Israel to go back into Gaza and take control of it and run it the way they run it in the West Bank. Um, I think Gaza is a maybe the most hopeless situation on earth in the sense that you have millions of people there who shouldn't be there. It's, it's, it's not a prosperous land. It's not a land you can thrive on. It's not like a, there's not a lot of farmland or space or resources. It's just a strip of land. I think Israel should be looking to make Gaza go away in the sense that you cut it off, you put it under intense siege, you starve it off of literally everything except for food and water. Literally. Everything except for food and water. Nothing else gets in. For as long as it takes until the people of Gaza decide to overthrow Hamas. Or until some country decides to let, take, take the Gazans in. It should not be your problem anymore. 
It should not be Israel's problem anymore. It shouldn't be a thing they invest another human life into. They have to go in, I think, to do limited operations to destroy actual Hamas infrastructure and weapons caches and kill as many, kill as many Hamas fighters as they can. And also Israel has, to, Israel has to be seen, Israel has to do an operation of that kind to prove they still can. To show the world, like to show, like if you're like a, if you're a terrorist organization in West Bank, you shouldn't think you can get away with this. If you're if you're Hezbollah in Lebanon, you should see that Israel has, Israel the IDF still has the ability to fight a war like this. Deterrence is the most important part of this to me. I think Hamas has small potatoes. Like it, it's not going to happen again. What they pulled off, what they pulled off was a once in a once in a lifetime um, tragic accident where it couldn't. It's Israel's not going to be caught with his pants down again like that in that way. Um, so Hamas is not a threat. But Hamas is an opportunity for deterrence to show what Israel can do. Israel, again, has to, has to develop a message to go along with this fight, with this actual operation, where they tell the entire world that, hey, this is not our problem. This is a country at war with us. We are going to starve it of the ability to make war upon us. If you care about the people in this territory, then you do whatever you want to do. Take them in. You try to find a way to overthrow Hamas and put in a different government, do whatever you want to do. But Israel is not responsible for what happens in Gaza anymore. We only, we only care about, they, they, don't have, they shouldn't have the ability to, to hurt us. And that should be Israel's message to the world over and over again. So Bennett's plan is, fits pretty closely to that. Bennett's, Bennett, Bennett, Bennett's plan is he wants to take over the, south, the north, like a chunk of the north, wants to conquer it, cut it off, um, take it. He wants to... Um, cut off all access of supplies, only, only letting food and water and medicine, basically. Um, and he wants to just do a siege until it's over, however, however it ends. He thinks Gazans should, the Gazans of the north should go to the south, and they'll, he says five to six months to five years, however long it takes, he doesn't care. Israel's going to treat it like a siege instead of a, a, an active campaign, an active war. And I think that's closer to the way, the way it should be. I don't think... I think the population of Gaza has been radicalized way beyond the point of any of anything that ever happened in the West Bank. I think people in the West Bank live close enough to a normal life and have lived close enough to a normal life that they're still in touch with basic human normalcy. Like they don't all want to die. I think there's big chunks of the population of Gaza who do not mind if they die. Straight up, I don't think they care. Their life has been hell for 15 years. It's been absolute hell. So I don't think that Israel can go back into Gaza in any productive way. I think it would be the most it would require the most intense repressive, constant monitoring and investment and, and fighting and operations and controls. It would it would suck the life out of Israel. It would cost way too much in life and money for Israeli soldiers. Um, I think if Israel wouldn't have would have never left in two thousand six, they could have they could have kept doing they could have treated it like the West Bank, but I don't think I don't think that's a possibility anymore, unfortunately. Interesting. Um, uh, look look interesting. Uh, the you you know but you also have to look at it as interesting as saying is that Israel's government inevitably will be pressured internationally. Now, I would say ignore that, but in practice, Israel government takes into a great deal what the world says. So I think whatever plans you're, you're planning to do, factor in that at some point, Israel government will need to bow to international pressure. Sure. So actually, I think it's easier to maintain a siege than it is to maintain a, a, police, state, a police state in Gaza now. Because mm -hmm. again, the Gazans will not cooperate the way the West Bank. The, the, the West Bank, the West Bank, generally cooperates with Israel. It, most of them, most of them value their life and prosperity more than they more than they care about the cause. Look, look, it's interesting. Again, I think it's a whole discussion, but but I think I think Gaza, on one hand, they're like similar. Where 
On one hand, they'll go and they'll do suicide and things like that. But on the other hand, they'll run back home and they want to be safe. Right. Well, they're people. People want to be safe in the end. The people. But but it's like, I mean... I think there's too many of the kind of people who are over the edge in Gaza. Too many. Right, right. As, as a percentage of the population. And Gaza, also the landscape right. is not hospitable to running... It's a dense urban landscape, most of it. Obviously, it's not its not the most densely populated area on earth, like the world loves to say over and over again. It's, it's like it's less dense than Paris. But it is, it's, a, it's an urban environment. It's, it's mostly a city. Most of Gaza is just six, six seven-story buildings. It's a, it's a city. Right. It's very hard to, to maintain a police presence in a place like that. In, right. in the West Bank, you have individual settlements, individual towns. And Israel doesn't spend a lot of time inside the main cities in the West Bank. The IDF doesn't live in in Janine and, and Ramallah and and and, and well, they go they go Gaza, they go where they have to, but they don't they don't they don't they don't stay in there. In Gaza, the whole the whole place is those cities. There's no like place to keep an outpost that would be safe from. No, no, Shusha. I mean, I mean, remember there were settlements. I yeah, mean, there were. There are. You, you, you're right. I mean, look, the the north was. You're right. It was mostly the city of Gaza. That is true. Yeah. And I think the cluster of settlements was a kind of in between in the middle of the Gaza yeah. Strip. And then south of that, there were not more cities. So so, so you're, you're right to some extent. But again, it will be like the, in, in my view, it will be like the West Bank, just harder though, with, with, with a bigger price in the Israeli society to pay, unfortunately. But uh, again, if we're not going to do that, then the price will well, be much harder. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I hope the IDF is listening to our genius plans. Um, I hope so. I hope so because um, that would that would solve it. Look, all we can really daven for is that um, Hashem helps that the Israeli government does what they have to do with minimal, with no loss of 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 of, an, of, another, of another of another Jewish soul, and this should just end. Like it's 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 it was it was it was it was nice living in the illusion, you know, of just a month ago where where this wasn't a possibility where 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 Israel was on a track for things being permanently better in, in, in some obvious ways. Um, it's, it's, it was nice. Let's, we should go back to that as soon as possible. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I mean. I mean. So the, I guess from here we should just end off by, how, how do you think Israeli society will handle this as, as a whole? So you, you're a native Israeli. You're still in touch with the, with the people and the, the, the media and the culture of it. Um, as Americans, we only get a very outward sense of it, um, of, of what it's like. We obviously we know them; they're our brothers. They're you know, but it's not, you don't really know what it's like unless you're from there, unless you live there, unless you unless your family and your language is there. So, how does Israeli society recover from this and turn from this? And, and what's what's the what's the priority? What's the what's the animating force? What's going to motivate, in your opinion, the next five years of of, of politics and culture in Israel? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. What, what, what I see, at least, I see something interesting is that the society reacts much faster than the establishment. Uh, and you see it in many ways. You see it in terms of unity, that people are just very united in Israel after coming after a few years of great division, unfortunately. So, but by the establishment, it takes time. So the media, I mean, in my opinion, still with their taxi, you know, toxic talk and culture. But people... I saw somebody on Twitter, an Israeli journalist, right? Like, I don't understand. Literally three days after this happened, every single new TV channel was just like panels where they're debating and fighting with each other. Just fighting, just nonstop fighting. I was like, how? How is that possible? Can you imagine after 9-11, like panels of people arguing about like, like who, who does that? Like, it's, it's very, it's weird. 
Right, right. So I would say, I mean, uh, I, I agree with you. And and again, I think society is not like that. That's, I just that, think, that's the media, not society. Exactly. I think, I think the establishment is just, they're so entrenched in their agenda that it takes some time. I think maybe even by them, it, it will take time. And I think maybe they'll come to their senses. But but society, for sure, I think very quickly united, which is very, very impressive. And of course, Israelis right now are on high morale, you know, in terms of getting their enemies. Uh, I would say that I believe that there will be a major shift to the right. You know, if there were any talks of peace, whatever was left over, I think people expose really the animal behavior of our enemies, you know, their bloodlust. Uh, you know, it's interesting, some of these kibbutzim that were attacked the were most, strong left wing. Lefty, yeah. the, most, mo- the most peacenik left wing. Right. The music festival was like a hardcore, like, peacenik, like, uh, like organization that ran it and promoted it, I think. Co- yeah, yeah, correct. So I know I, I didn't, I didn't know about that, but, but, but I know the kibbutzim, yes, correct, they were very left. Though I do think that, unfortunately, the right wing, again, in my opinion, I'm sorry, I'm going back to that, but um, the right wing uh, population is being ignored Cities in the south that are much more associated with right wing were also greatly, greatly victimized on that day. Um, I mean, Ofakim, city in the north, right wing city, usually associated with that. Uh, about 50 people died on that day from there. And Sderot, of course, also, generally speaking, right wing uh, city. But nevertheless, from the right, from but the left. That's media. That's media. Correct. That's media. Exactly, exactly. That's media. But I think there'll be a great shift to the right. Now, it's interesting how. The, the political parties would adjust. Uh, if Bibi would keep playing this centrist... Do you think Bibi has a chance to stay in power after this? It's interesting. I don't know. I don't know, but, but I want to say like this. It's interesting. Regardless, I would say he didn't have much, many years left anyway. Right. I mean, remember, he's from 2009. His current term is ending, I believe, in 2026, I believe. Uh, I mean, we're almost, not almost, I mean, we have three and a half years. If the coalition doesn't fall apart before Exactly, correct. Exactly. So now, I I believe he knew that anyways his time is running out, but he wanted, obviously, his last legacy to be a peace with Saudi Arabia and with the Arab world. Obviously, that changed. (laughs) Um, So, a bummer for him. But uh, I would say, look, if it would last, look, it's, it's complicated. It's very complicated. Like, like in super short, I think, what did, what did the army tell him? What did the security forces tell him? I think uh, that really depends. Look, I, I mean, mean it's, beyond that, I think I've been seeing again. This is I, I'm this is just knowledge. I'm I'm seeing all this filtered through a lens of 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 the le- the central left media that talks in English from Israel. There's a lot of anger, from what I can tell, about the way Ibibi's handling the public relations of this part of it. He didn't go sit with the families. He didn't, he's been MIA for days at a time. His press conferences don't have a lot of teichen to them. Like a lot of weird stuff is going on. He doesn't seem to have control. His, in the aftermath, his, his cabinet didn't do anything. They weren't like running out there around the streets, like volunteering and, and showing up and talking, visiting. They were doing nothing. A few of them resigned. Like, like it, it's, it seems like a pretty dysfunctional government he's running right now. Yes and no. Yes again, and obviously, no. I'm filtering so, 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 so through you, that. So I'll tell you, there's a lot of, I, I, again, I believe there's a lot of truth to that, to that criticism. Netanyahu was missing in action for the first few days. Disaster. I mean, that was, I mean, I mean, just it was shocking, I think. I mean, he came out on Facebook on the first day, ma- making some statement, a statement while at war. I mean, I understand there was confusion. I mean, I mean, think about it, Bush on the first day of 9-11. There's a lot of confusion of, of what's actually going on. 
And you actually had enemies still roaming around in some cities. Of course. You know, so, so I, I mean, the, 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 um, the positive view of how he performed would say that he was just spending the entire day in a bunker talking to generals, figuring out the response, which is totally justified. But the, the PR becomes reality. If you're not out there, people see you as MIA. Even if you were actually spending your whole time in the pit in, in Tel Aviv, well, talking to the talking to the generals. So, so look, really depends because because look, that's what he was doing. He was right. literally in the Korea, in the complex that's uh, defending, and that's literally where it was. And that's what I would expect him to be. The only thing I'll give you an example: he did not speak on the first two days because he was waiting for Biden first. I think that's, that's shocking. Insane. That's insane. That is insane. That is insane. Again, I'm sure Bibi will have a lot to say. I'm not necessarily defending that. I think he made a lot of mistakes. In terms of the ministers, not things. I, I again, we won't get into that. I think, but but that's that's very portraying it very wrong. Remember, they were saying all along that Bibi is failing and right, he's right, all right, along. So so look look, I, I there was a huge fella and he has a part of it. And and I'm not saying could be he'll have to could be I'll expect from him to resign. That that Meaning could once, be once we once we get more information about how this happened and, and all that. Sure, sure, sure. FDR did not resign after Pearl Harbor. Right. And, you know, again, I mean, there are many different examples of leaders going through these great scandals that caught them, caught them their armies, and so, by surprise, and they somehow made a U-turn from there. Bibi uh, doesn't, that's my point, that he does not have a lot of time regardless to make a huge U-turn. That's kind of my point. Uh, again, I believe he has three years and what? From 2009, he's going to go to 2030. Like, like I doubt, I mean, yeah. so, so yeah, regardless. But look, let's see how he'll, how he'll behave. But yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. for that, we've been talking for a long time. We've been rambling for a long time. So for those yeah. of you who made it through all the way to the end, we really appreciate your time. Um, like I mentioned at the top, this is our very first recording of this new podcast project. Um, you'll hear more of this very soon. And, um, just Ashi, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for sitting for such a freaking long time. We really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, you know, time just flies, uh, you know, here. And again, I appreciate very much having your uh, conversations with these types of conversations with you. And in this new platform, uh, much much success, Bezal Hashem. Thank you. Um, I wish I wish our first conversation was about happier things and happier times. Next time, God willing. Amen. Um, yeah. So just, yeah, Mr. Um, Hashem will we'll bench the end of Israel and around the world with peace and safety and Mashiach, obviously, which will end all these problems and make all these conversations irrelevant, which would be very... Very, very nice. It would be nice if nobody ever heard this cop this podcast because Shia came in. It was just this like this is not this um, is stupid. Amen. Check that out. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Anyways, Ashi, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate Thank it. you. And we'll be back to hopefully again talking about more positive things. Yes, Amen. Thank you. Thank you, right. Shoulder. Bye bye.